Okay, uh, folks, I'd like to welcome you all to the weekly meeting of the ERA committee. Um, we're recorded here, so we have, we are, and members are all appropriately seated. And um, The meeting will include a briefing today uh, from the Minister uh, on EU uh, exit preparedness and priorities for 2021. There will be a number of SL1s and SRs, as well as the departmental, uh, departmental briefings. Um, Morris and Claire and Patsy, uh, you are very welcome uh, by Starleaf and the other members of the committee are present. And we know from before that the meeting will be broadcast online and throughout Parliament buildings. And you can use your uh, mobile devices as long as they're muted or in airplane mode. So I'd like to... Um, Morning. 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 Mr. Boots would like to, and Dennis and Robert would like to <coughs> the opportunity to welcome you here before the committee this morning. Um, indeed, your, yourself, Mr. Boots, um, you've uh, battled through some illness in recent time, and uh, we're, it's good to see you back out and about again at, yeah. at duties. And you, uh, you weren't long getting getting back getting back back into place again. So um, thanks very much for coming to the committee, and I really really appreciate that there uh, you coming here. Uh, also by Starleaf we have Norman Norman Fulton, uh, Mark Livingston, and Nicole MacArthur. And Minister, I know that you have um, an, an, another meeting to attend. So uh, you know this probably the best part of an hour here for, for to brief the committee, and indeed the. the um, you know, if any other officials can stay on for any additional questions. So I'd like uh, to welcome Minister Pooch and your uh, officials to commence the, the briefing. The members can ask some questions thereafter. Thank you. Uh, thank you, Chair, and thank you for the good wishes. And uh, I'm glad to be here and uh, appreciate the invitation uh, and the opportunity to share an update position on the EU transition work, followed by uh, our key priorities for DERA in 2021. So on EU exit transition, I last spoke to you in July, and that's one of the reasons I was keen to be here this morning. Um, uh, it's been a wee while, and updated you on DERA's COVID-19 response, as well as preparations for the end of the EU transition period. And more recently, in November, you received an oral update from the Permanent Secretary on DERA's preparedness for EU exit. Um, in terms of the protocol, um, DUP stopped Mrs May's deal on three occasions, and then Boris Johnson's deal last November, at which point he called an election where he won his 80-seat majority and forced us through, in spite of our opposition in, in January. So whilst we, as a political party, oppose the protocol, it is now in place, and it is the role of everyone who is in government um, uh, to convince uh, the UK government to ameliorate the, the worst excesses of it. And the DUP opposed the protocol, voted against the House of Commons, consistently warned both the May and Johnson government about treading this path. Uh, sadly, despite our votes, the government continued to pursue arrangements for Northern Ireland that are both unnecessary and left uncorrected, potentially damaging to the Northern Ireland economy. Those arrangements slowing from the protocol are, of course, temporary, in that the Northern Ireland Assembly will have the opportunity to revisit the protocol and vote upon it in four years' time. We remind all of those involved in the European Union specifically that unless arrangements have the support of both unionists and nationalists in Northern Ireland, they will ultimately fail. On that basis, it's imperative that on the ground implementation, does not in any way disadvantage the people 
of Northern Ireland or our place within the UK market. I'd like to start off by com commenting on last week's statement from the Chancellor of the Duchy of Lancaster on the agreement in principle with the EU-UK Joint Committee. Progress has been made that will help in the short term to minimise checks and processes on goods moving from GB to Northern Ireland. There has also been progress in other areas such as state aid. I would, however, like to have seen a more substantive solution. So in June I wrote to the DEFRA Secretary of State, George Eustace, urged him to ensure that Northern Ireland consumers and businesses do not face higher costs or other detriment compared with people elsewhere in the UK as a result of the Northern Ireland Protocol. Last week's announcement does not provide long-term mitigations. It is inevitable, therefore, that additional costs will be passed on to Northern Ireland consumers unless the UK Government comes forward with further measures to address these. A solution has not been delivered to prevent barriers to the movements of breeding animals from GB to Northern Ireland. This will decimate traditional trading practices between ourselves and GB. As such, it has serious consequence for GB sellers, GB-based livestock markets and shows, and livestock breeders throughout these islands. A solution has not been delivered for complex processing chains, where raw materials and ingredients pass back and forward from Northern Ireland to GB. I had asked the UK Government through Minister Eustace to negotiate minimal controls for agri-foods for internal Northern Ireland consumption, such as retail consignments. While this has not been granted permanently, we do have a three-month grace period for retail consignments, including supermarkets. While this is welcome, it is important that we continue to make representations to the UK Government so that we are not simply pushing back problems until the 1st of April 2021. A temporary grace period also applies to goods affected by prohibitions and restrictions. This includes veterinary medicines, minced meat and meat preparation, and unprocessed meats coming from the EU to GB being returned to Northern Ireland. It is critical in coming weeks and months for DERA and DEFRA to work in partnership to support businesses in Northern Ireland and GB for 1 January 2021 and to keep these preparations going in order to be fully prepared for the ending of each grace period. I understand from officials that DERA intends to be ready for the 1st of January 2021 and the subsequent weeks. Clearly we still await an outcome on trade negotiations and we all hope a deal can be done but we must be prepared for all eventualities. Let me assure you that my officials are working hard to ensure that we are prepared for a no deal scenario. Officials have been working to put in place contingency arrangements for Northern Ireland. This will ensure that SPS related goods to flow through our ports it will ensure food uh, supply security, while DERA continue to finalise preparations. I am sure officials will be happy to answer any questions you may have on this. A more positive outcome of the agreement was the announcement on the state aid and, uh, and level of support that can be provided to our farmers and flexibilities in relation to fishery support. For farmers, this means £400 million of spending each year is totally exempt from state aid rules and more than £15 million of flexibility for Northern Ireland's fishing industry over the next five years. DERA's key priorities and outcomes um, are, are, are an important element as we move forward. And as we set out for the 2021-2022 business plan, uh, it will be a valuable tool to help us deliver more in line with our aim for sustainability at the heart of living, working, active landscape, valued by everyone. Next year is also the first year of the departmental 30-year strategy, Sustainability for the Future, dearest plan to 2050. It deliberately coincides with our exit from the EU, reflecting the opportunities we now have to develop new policies and approaches, and specifically it maps a future, maps a future policy journey across the food environment, agriculture and rural affairs spectrum.
While looking to the future, it is important to act now. Several targets from the current plan will extend into the 2021-22 business plan, notably maintaining international market access, delivering an agreed rural policy framework and schemes for Northern Ireland, and progressing the bovine TB strategy. An initial planning exercise has identified the following priorities. EU exit and implementation and outworkings of the Northern Ireland Protocol. COVID-19 recovery, we will continue to work with industry, the environment and sector and rural communities provide guidance and appropriate support to enable recovery from the impacts of COVID-19. Throughout 2020, we have supported our stakeholders with tens of millions of pounds to help them through this crisis to aid recovery. For example, I secured £25 million from the Northern Ireland Executive <coughs> to support the beef, dairy, sheep, horticulture and potato sectors. I supported our fishing and aquaculture sectors with almost £4 million of funding. I allocated £7 million through the Tackling uh, Rural Poverty and Social Isolation Programme to help business in our rural communities. Um, <coughs> I ensured that the environment sector received over £1.3 million in additional support and contributed £2.3 million capital <coughs> to the Town Centre and Rural Settlements Revitalisation Programme led by DFC. This funding is helping rural settlements with a population below 5,000. <coughs> Uh, recover from the impacts of COVID-19. We also contribute to support faith-based organisations' operations to deliver much-needed food bank services alongside DFC, um, whose rules uh, prohibited them from doing it. And I allocated over £15 million to local councils to help with additional waste collection, treatment and disposal centres, at the same time <coughs> ensuring that recycling centres operated uh, as soon as safely possible. Well, it's not strictly COVID-related, as able to launch a number of pilot projects which I hope will assist small business through this very difficult time. Programme for Government. My department has specific responsibilities in relation to the Programme for Government for 2021. It is my intention that we play a bigger role in the future Programme for Governments, recognising the importance of climate change, moving to a low-carbon economy, and protecting and enhancing the environment's DERA agenda is everyone's agenda and should be reflected across all parts of government. Within that, green growth is a major priority. As I have stated previously, it is the heart of our approach to tackling climate change, as well as the wider environment strategies and frameworks. In my statement to the Assembly on the 23rd of June 2020, I outlined the concept of green growth approach to transform and grow the Northern Ireland economy, whilst protecting our natural assets and reducing our carbon emissions. I know you are familiar with what we are trying to achieve in this space, so the main thing that I would like you to note <coughs> is my intention to produce a green growth strategy by March 2021. This will build on the current consultation on the Northern Ireland's first ever uh, climate change bill. This is a priority for me and my department. <coughs> it is my intention for an executive climate change bill to achieve its legislative pa passage within this mandate, and I welcome the recommendations presented by the Climate Change Committee around the sixth carbon budget, I believe it presents an evidence-based and pragmatic reduction in carbon emissions. I am pleased to note the important role of agriculture in Northern Ireland has been recognised, and the Climate Change Committee have recognised that for Northern Ireland to aim for net zero would be damaging to the economy and would only lead to our excellent food production being moved elsewhere. Success will require partnership working <coughs> with our departments local government and key stakeholders from across the business and voluntary sectors. The outcome will be a framework of programmes which will help to deliver a resilient recovery 
through a greener, low-carbon and circular economy for Northern Ireland. Our first foundation programme under green growth, Forest for a Future, aims to plant 18 million trees in 10 years. I'm pleased to report that a lot of work is underway. To date, 574,000 trees have been planted. In support of further planting, I'm putting in place a £4 million small woodland grant scheme, helping landowners to plant their own native woodlands. Furthermore, there's been some excellent partnership working with a range of public sector organisations, such as Belfast City Council and Northern Ireland Water, each of whom have announced that they're going to plant one million trees each. In my statement um, to the Assembly in November, I, I, I issued uh, regarding future agricultural policy. I pointed out that as we leave the EU for the first time in 40 years, we have a unique opportunity to customise agricultural policies and support schemes. Our policies do not have to be constrained by the EU cap construct, and we need to move to something uh, which addresses the future needs um, of Northern Ireland. Our work ahead will address four key outcomes. Increased productivity environmental sustainability, improved resilience and an integrated, efficient, sustainable, competitive and responsive food supply chain. It is crucial that we develop new policies and support schemes to provide opportunities for all of our farmers with no farmer left behind. We need to help farmers to develop their business no matter where they farm, to become more efficient and to maximise the sustainable returns they can achieve, to develop the assets at their disposal by enhancing them into sustainable profit centres especially environmental assets. It is my hope that in this way we can create a win-win between environmental improvements and economic development. My officials will review our approach to the current schemes, implementing improvements and simplifications in keeping with the longer-term direction of travel. <clears throat> this will be taken forward under the Agricultural Act. Work is already underway. In September of this year I announced that I would be removing the greening requirements with effect from the 1st of January 2021. The reason for this was that these requirements have not been effective in delivering environmental benefits, yet they were associated with an intense administrative burden for both farmers and the department. <coughs> also noted, asked officials to review the application of the cross-compliance penalties as soon as possible. Our aim is to ensure that penalties are proportionate, reflect the seriousness of non-compliance which have been identified. Officials will continue to work on simplifications and improvements on the rules government governing the direct payment scheme for the 2021 scheme year, as detailed in my November briefing. In undertaking this work, I want officials to ensure food security through effective marketing of Northern Ireland products, through funding of sustainable land management practices, and by providing innovative ways of meeting the challenge which climate change presents to our long-term food supply. The work will continue in 2021. Ultimately, I want to ensure that we take full advantage of the opportunities presented to us post-EU exit and to grow a sustainable agricultural industry in which all farmers are supported on an equitable basis. <coughs> our environment strategy is inextricably linked to this. It's our commitment that continued protection and improvement of the environment continues. We have the freedom but also the responsibility to develop new approaches. We have to decide how to report, monitor and set targets. We will also have to consider coordinated and joined approaches across the UK. And to that end, I published a discussion document last week, seeking views on a number of specific elements in the UK Government's Environment Bill, including environmental principles and the Office of Environmental Protection, currently making its way through Parliament. Environmental principles have been at the core of international law for many decades. 
and I want to ensure that Northern Ireland continues to benefit from the application of these important principles following the transition period. An environment strategy will set the context in which we do this through a long-term overarching framework. It is anticipated that the Environment Bill will receive royal assent in early 2021, and the implementation of this bill, along with the Clean Air Strategy, the Ammonia Strategy and a proposed Plastic Reduction Plan, will be progressed by officials throughout 2021. While we are planning for future, we have also been busy this year on the environmental agenda. In June, I launched a consultation on the future recycling and separate collection of waste of a household nature in Northern Ireland. In November, I launched a consultation on Northern Ireland's first ever Clean Air Strategy. I have also announced that the Northern Ireland Executive had approved a plan to reduce unnecessary plastic within the NICS Government Estate. In the meantime, DRO officials will of course continue to conduct <coughs> appropriate environmental regulatory checks, monitoring and enforcement. Once I approve 2021-22 business plan, the timeframe is currently scheduled for publication by 31 March 2021, and I will ensure that officials have a tabled on forward work plan for consideration. Um, at this committee. In the meantime, I hope that has been a helpful overview of the Department's key priorities for 2021 and how it will influence 2021-22 um, business planning processes. Thank you, Mr Chair. Thank you for that, Minister. <coughs> um, Minister, I wanted just to ask you in relation to um, our, prepared, our preparedness, the port, particularly the post preparedness. Um, I just want to know, is the, how are the con contingency arrangements at the ports uh, working like well we have the full suite of structures there to enable these uh, required checks to prevent any blockages east west come the first of january okay i'm going to pass anything that's to do with ports over to Dennis McMahon, please thanks thank you minister um just uh, i suppose building on the previous um updates we'd given to the committee uh, we have preparations in place for three types of checks um so the first uh, the, the first check that's required is 100% documentary checks, um, and we will be doing that remotely uh, by officials working in Northern Ireland who will uh, clear the documentary checks on the export health certificates. The second level of checks will be um, identity checks, and this is a reality check, just to make sure that the paperwork that we've been given matches the goods. Um, it's a quick check. Robert will be happy to talk about any details on that that, that we need to. But the idea um, is that we will do that by getting um, officials, people working on behalf of the department in, UK, in GB ports to actually do checks on the seals of the lorries. So in other words, you've got the paperwork, the lorry's sealed, and they'll be checking the seal to say, yes, this matches, and that will avoid having to open it up. The third level of checks are physical checks, um, and the physical checks will happen to a percentage of um, the freight vehicles coming across. Um, and again, Robert will be happy to talk about any, any further details you want on that. Um, and the key point there is about having enough physical structures in place to be able to, um, to do those, those physical checks. Um, so we will have those in place. Again, Mark Livingstone, who's here, will be happy to talk through any of the detail around, around that. But essentially, we will have the basic physical structures in place to be able to do that. Now, um, there are two issues, I suppose, coming out of that. One is, in addition to all of the, the, the elements of that, we need to have the IT working. It's, uh, the IT at this side of it is working um, in, in terms of our IT. Expectations are good that we'll have that in place. 
uh, we will need to have export health certificates coming from GB um, or appropriate documentation. Um, it will depend, it will change slightly for retail. In fact, it will change significantly for retail business. And uh, that, so, and, and the other piece is having the people in place and having them trained up. So the challenge now will be to get all of those elements working together because although I talked about the three checks, they all happen together. So documentary checks, ID checks, and then physical checks. Um, and I suppose that's the, the attention now is turned to making sure that all of those systems work and that they all come together into one system to avoid <coughs> any delays as far as we possibly can and uh, to reduce friction on trade coming in and costs for businesses and consumers. Um, I just can I check maybe Robert if I've missed anything there that you that I maybe you'd want to highlight? No, that's comprehensive. But just to re-emphasize that the the facilities for the physical checks, um, the contingency arrangements will be in place. And it has been a heroic effort on behalf of Mark Livingstone, his team, and indeed the contractors to get there in time. We have had weekly visits from the Commission to ensure that what we build uh, meets the required standard. Uh, while I designate them, um, they do need. Uh, the approval of the EU, and they've been ensuring that what we build will meet their requirements, and grateful to the EU for that help. Um, thank you. Thank you very much. And j just on the, you mentioned the IT. Um, are, are are you confident that the the echo system across the water will integrate with Faces NT system to facilitate that? Um, we obviously we don't have direct control yeah. over that element of it, and I suppose we've focused very much on the element of it that applies to us, which is we need to have the uh, certification coming across on Traces NT, yeah. which is the EU's yeah. um, export system or importing system. We need then to have our own system in place, which is CHIP, and that will allow us then to do whatever checks. Uh, it actually just makes it more efficient. We could access Traces directly but it makes it more efficient for us to do the documentary checks. Um, Echo will be, um, there's no doubt that Echo will be up and running. However, whether it's up and running with all of the functionality that, will, that, that, that would be needed to help us to make those checks more efficient, that's another question. And that's something we're working very closely with uh, DEFRON. <coughs> to answer your question in simple terms, we expect the, the basic infrastructure to be in place around IT. But um, there are elements of it that we can't control, particularly the elements of it um, relating to Echo, and we'll just have to wait and see how much of the functionality is there. But one way or the other, we would expect to be able to do documentary checks, to do the ID checks, and to do the, the physical checks. Um, just before we move around the room, just when you, you said the word chip, it got me thinking about chips. Um, the, uh, uh, just referring to the, uh, the cabinet, um, protocol document that was provided to us in our pack today. The uh, paragraph 35 made reference to prohibitions on certain types of chilled meats and to avoid disruption, there be an immediate solution for these meats to continue to move between Britain and indeed here. Um, we have uh, been lobbied quite heavily by the um, people involved in the fast food sector and potato sector as well. Um, there's around 600,000 tonnes of quality uh, quality fried potatoes that are imported here each year, which is absolutely vital for the the sustainability and the quality of our 
chips and um, food, various food outlets, but they don't seem to be included as part of this um, uh, arrangement. Um, could you give us some update on that there as to what discussions or uh, has there been with the industry there to try and continue that uh, ability to import from places like East Anglia where a lot of the potatoes come from? On that issue, it's been a very challenging one. Um, so <coughs> you could import processed potatoes from England. So if they're potatoes which have been washed and peeled, as I understand, they can be they can be imported. It is um, related to, to potatoes with skins on and the potential of soil contamination. And that's even skins on, I think, washed. Um, because there could still be soil contamination. Uh, so it is a... a a new and un unnecessary rule, un unnecessary rule, uh, which will prevent um, potatoes, which would normally have went into the fast food chain, as you rightly point out, um, going into the fast food chain. I suppose uh, the current alternatives is that people import them from places like Holland, instead, um, or indeed that they come in in a processed form. Uh, we have fought and argued this one up and down. Um, I spoke to George Eustace last night, um, just after 5.30, um, or just after 5 o'clock on this issue, and uh, a number of other issues, uh, including pet travel, uh, because there, whilst we have been fighting and fighting and fighting to mitigate the damage and aspects of the protocol, and we have had um, a, a reasonable de degree of success, uh, there are areas which are outstanding, and this is one of them. And it's a piece of work that you are continuing to... Yes, it was highlighted to the Secretary of State no later than last night. Um, I'm going to move around the room. William, you're first on the list. Thank you, Mr Chairman, and thank the Minister for making the effort to be here today. He's very welcome back. Um, certainly some of the decisions seem bizarre to me, but can you explain the legal working of the withdrawal agreement and the <coughs> protocol agreed by the UK and the EU? And does it not seem that the EU are not in flex, flex, showing very little flexibility in relation to these major issues? I mean, there will be a cost to the Northern Ireland consumer if this continues uh, and goes ahead as, as you know, potatoes from East Anglia. I, I'm one importer in my constituency, I'm told there's another one in the Alamina area, uh, supplies a lot of the but he also supplies a lot of small shops. They import 10 kilo bags of potatoes, and about 45% of the, my constituent, 45% of the imports go to small retailers, and indeed some of the larger retailers from them just go to. So there has to have an impact. I think this particular guy in my constituency imports 300 tons a week, so that's a big gap. Uh, so it will be. Implications of this, uh, if the EU continues to be inflexible in this. Yeah. Um, well, throughout all of this, um, and I indicate in my opening statement what, what my position is on it, what my party's position is on it, uh, but throughout all of this, we, we work with the reality that this has been passed through uh, Westminster and it is law, and uh, therefore um, there is, is elements of it uh, that we do not like. Um, but recognise that, that it is passed in law and uh, therefore will be imposed upon us one way or the other. Uh, so we have sought to mitigate as much as possible. So, for example, over the course of the next number of months, 
um, in terms of the, the, the that food supply that's coming in. It'll be a self-certification um, that'll take place in the depots in GB. Um, that self-certification will be associated with a seal. The self-certified document will go to the lorry driver. That lorry driver will pass that to um, uh, someone at the port in Cairn Ryan. Um, and whilst the seal is in place, um, that will be acceptable. So that's a significant um, achievement in that at one stage, people were talking about export health certificates being required for um, individual pallets on that load, which, which would have added. You know, at one stage you were looking at, at adding thousands of pounds to every lorry load of goods coming to Northern Ireland, which would ultimately have been passed to consumers. And that's the last thing that, that um, anybody wanted, entirely unnecessary. Uh, so we, we've avoided that for the time being. I want to ensure that that continues to be the case um, um, once this, this transition period is passed. The potato one's slightly more tricky in that um, there is issues about potato diseases like brown rust, eelworm and so forth. And, uh, you know, the European Union has, has, has rules in terms of goods that come into the European Union, which has the potential plants, which have the potential of bringing disease. Um, GB is no longer a member of the European Union. Uh, we now uh, um, are sitting in the status where we are in uh, the EU for SPS, um, for, for these products. Uh, so for these food products, we are essentially remain part of the European Union. Um, the consequence of that is that um, potatoes with skins on um, are treated differently um, because they have the potential of introducing plant disease to Northern Ireland. Now, it's no greater a risk than it was um, today, whenever you can do it, it's not going to be a greater risk next month. But nonetheless, um, that, that is the situation and the position. My officials have been arguing this extensively, and uh, we will continue to make the case because um, that flow of trade was a beneficial trade. And uh, as I say, I indicated to George Eustace, it is not our desire to have to import potatoes from Holland, extra haulage, extra food miles. Um, and all of that. It is not our desire to do that, um, but that's what is going to end up happening if we cannot get this resolved um, to our satisfaction, and currently it's not resolved to our satisfaction. Okay, thank hey, you. William, uh, Rosemary? Yeah, thank you. Minister, it's good to see you back. And all the best Thanks, Rosemary. continued recovery. Minister, the role of the Joint Committee is critical in determining which goods are entering Northern Ireland and especially those ones that are labelled at risk mm -hmm. of entering the EU single markets. Um, what process will the Joint Committee use to determine what at-risk goods are? Well, I have been disappointed that the Joint Committee hadn't achieved more than what, the, what was the case. I have to say that a lot of work has been done by Robert and his team um, directly with the vets. Um, to reduce the impact of this, and there's probably been more achieved there um, than there has been through the Joint Committee. Um, so these at-risk goods um, are, are wide-ranging, and you know we need to recognise, for example, that there is one quarter of a billion pounds worth of um, red, red meat imported to Northern Ireland each year. Much of it is processed in your constituency, in the, in the Dungannon area, um, some of it up in Foyle. Um, and that go largely goes back to, to, to Great Britain. <coughs> that, that secures jobs here. 
it secures viability of, of businesses here and opportunity. Um, there is another significant element of, of um, white meat products, both chicken and pork, um, which would be the same. So there's significant processing taking place in Cookstown, significant processing taking place through Moy Park um, of uh, material which is produced in the GB um, and processed here. And that demonstrates how advanced our processing capacity actually is, um, that it is viable, that that is imported and processed here and goes back to, to, to GB. So <clears throat> we have fought very, very hard to ensure these businesses um, are not detrimentally impacted as a consequence. So maybe, Robert, you would give a bit of a taste for some of the work that has been done on, on that side of things. The flexibilities the, the Minister refers to are those that were already within the the EU law, but perhaps maximising uh, their impact. So the ability to use um, remote checks, the, the uh, computer, uh, pre-notification, um, is a flexibility that's there for COVID uh, and that we are going to make use of. The ability to use a seal check instead of opening the back door of every container is a flexibility that's in le legislation and that we'll make use of. And the ability to um, alter the frequency of the physical checks through a risk assessment is something that we're making full use of for supermarket foods. Um, on, on the issue of the, the products that still can't move, the so-called prohibitions and restrictions, an awful lot of that lies around the detail that's held within the export health certificates and the phytosanitary certificates. And these are the same certificates as we were fighting with this time last year uh, when we were thinking about the land border and having to produce 1.9 million certificates. Some of you might recall that number to move material from the same material from Northern Ireland to the Republic. And those are the same certificates that GB is now having, having, to, having to use to move product from GB to Northern Ireland as part of the EU uh, SPS regulatory zone. And these are very difficult certificates. And that's where the, the problems are emerging with the breeding animals. Uh, those are the same requirements as we had when we were trying to sign them in Northern Ireland to, to go um, to, to the Republic of Ireland. Same certificates. Now, what the UK is doing is it's reciprocating those same certificates with the EU. So the requirements for um, a third country, GB, to export into the EU will be the same for the EU to, to export into GB. And CVOs across um, Europe, I think it's fair, are, are starting to look at those conditions uh, within the model certificates that they've never looked at before. <coughs> and my expectation, um, I've been invited to an EU meeting of CVOs this afternoon, along with Chief Plant Officer John Joe Boyle, um, to participate in the meeting with, uh, with EU CVOs this afternoon. And I think that's going to be the beginning of that conversation about the, the requirements within those certificates and how they can be ameliorated in order to make the trade easier in both directions. This is normal um, between trading blocks. Discussions on export <coughs> health certificates go on all the time. Um, currently, as you know, they're going on between, between the UK and Hong Kong. They go on between ourselves and the US. Uh, and it's a continuous thing between veterinary, uh, uh, veterinary competent authorities, plant health competent authorities, to talk to your trading partners in order to look at the detail of the, of the import export requirements. And the fact that the UK is reciprocating those same certificates with, with the EU, I think, will speed up and help those conversations, because quite frankly, there's something in it for everybody.
Uh, and uh, you know, where up until now, these conditions have been held up very much within the negotiating process and have been fed into the negotiation process and has been relatively, as the Minister was saying, unsuccessful through Specialist Committee and Joint Committee. I think, the, as the Minister indicated, I think the greater chance for success in finding a way through some of these issues is, uh, is through discussions at a technical level, but it's going to take time. And our difficulty is, is how do we get through that period until we have a, a more sensible set of certificates that more reflect the actual risk. At the moment, it's just a blanket. Um, we need to start picking away at those uh, in a risk-based way in order to ensure that sensible controls are in place. Um, what I'm telling my staff is I want sensitive, pragmatic, sensible <coughs> enforcement of these regulations. But at the same time, I and my staff must keep the law, and we are subject to the EU law uh, relating to this, these areas. Yeah. If you can't reach agreement in relation to these at-risk goods and there's an arbitration panel, how does that work then? I, until there is an agreement, a great cert, that can allow these animals to move, you have to move them, or other products, that you have to move them uh, <coughs> under the conditions that are laid down in the certificates and the agreements and the legislation that backs up all of this. So um, the pets one is a very good example where, on a risk basis, for neither rabies or for tapeworm, is there a risk argument uh, for any controls on animals moving around these islands, in fact? There is, there, there is no risk basis for that. But it's in the legislation that it has to happen, so it has to happen. Otherwise, I will be breaking the law. And it's with great regret that I have to enforce, but I have to enforce. And uh, we were doing our best Sensitive, sensible, pragmatic, um, but at the same time, um, the law is the law. Okay. Just, just one question on tariffs, and that's all. Okay. If that's okay. Yeah, you talked in paragraph 27 in your command paper uh, that uh, make full use of the provisions in the protocol, giving us powers to waiver or reimburse tariffs on goods moving from Great Britain to Northern Ireland. <coughs> Where these are classified at risk or entering the EU market, how will the UK government um, administer this? Well, in terms of <coughs> excuse me, goods that go to retail, um, clearly, clearly that's not an issue. Uh, for goods that come in for further processing here and have the potential to, to go to the EU, so that would be fair as referring to. Um, that will be an issue which is, is challenging because 90% of that beef went back to, to GB, but 10% of it went otherwise. So, you know, you could take all of your steak cuts, all your prime cuts out of it, um, and end up with 5% of mince, which, which ends up in the EU. Um, so, you know, can, can we get to a situation where the tariff that would be applied would be the tariff of the quantity that actually ends up in the EU, as opposed to the tariff being applied to everything? You know, the, the entire consignment that came from uh, GB to Northern Ireland, and then you have to claim that back because if you have a tariff, for example, of 40%, <coughs> um, and you had a process because some of this, this good, goods may end up being frozen, frozen mints, for example, uh, it may be frozen for, for a year, 18 months. Uh, so you'd be laying out that 40% on that carcass for 5% of the lower value of it. So 
you can see where I'm going, go, going to in terms of the, the, the value of, of, of the whole process uh, becomes negligible and, and consequently uh, people won't want to do it. Uh, so <coughs> by and large um, we will be seeking to ensure uh, that the tariff um, is, is something which, which isn't applied but as Robert says there will be laws there uh, on various issues and in the event of a, of a no deal uh, Brexit which is as things are at the minute, um, then um, those will become issues. Okay. Thanks. Uh, Philip. Thank you, Chair. I'm conscious that we're having a discussion on uh, EU exit. If there was time, I'd like to come back in on some of the other points that the Minister raised on climate legislation and uh, COVID support. Uh, Minister, uh, it's good to see you back uh, after your short stay in hospital. I genuinely wish you well in your recovery. Yeah. Uh, on a political note, uh, though, I mean, I think it's not going to be lost on people that you're the second DUP minister in two days, uh, coming to committees and uh, laying out, uh, I suppose, what is the disaster of, of Brexit and its implications for uh, businesses here in the north, or consumers, economy, communities, and, and individuals, uh, and, and that is unfortunate. But I mean, we are where we are in terms of the presentation uh, and the questions. Some of the points that I wanted to raise uh, and their impacts have already been uh, identified by other members. Just, I mean, you, you talked about the, the grace period for some of the, the issues that haven't been uh, agreed and about potentially just kicking the can down the line. So, I mean, can I ask, is it realistic, uh, given what we've seen, uh, that we will find agreement on those issues in the time frame? I mean, we're talking about. Uh, three months for SPS checks. We're talking about six months for chilled meat and medicines. Twelve, twelve months. You know, is it realistic that we will find agreement uh, on those issues that have been deferred, or will we be looking at the, the uncertainty and the chaos that we're now looking at when those time periods uh, reach their conclusion? And then, just secondly and briefly, uh, we've talked a lot about officials and checks and, and IT systems. Can I ask for a bit of clarity on? the anticipated role of the EU officials uh, at the ports, uh, now that there's been agreement on both sides on that? OK. Uh, first of all, um, some, some might say it's a disaster of Brexit. Um, other, others will, will very clearly point to the disaster of the protocol that um, you know, many parties called for, um, failing to recognise that over 50% of the trading that we do uh, is with GB and the consequences of that trade uh, both ways. Uh, is significantly uh, damaged as a consequence um, of the protocol, but nonetheless, uh, we can have that de de debate um, <coughs> again, and, and, and happy to do so. In terms of the timeframes, um, who, who knows? Um, you know, what I would say is that there has been really good work has been done over the course of the last two or three months on a non-political field. <coughs> And I believe that if we take the politics out of it and get away from the politics of it and allow the people who um, are doing the practical side of it, which is largely the vets but, but others, uh, I think that there is an opportunity for common sense and rationale um, to win the day. And uh, I know that, that that has won the day on, on, a, on a number of issues. Uh, We've bought ourselves a bit of time for, 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 for these things to be discussed out. And ultimately, <coughs> the question for the EU negotiators or the EU um, 
you know, practitioners on this. Where is the threat to the single market here? So, you know, that food that's going into um, your Asda, your Sainsbury's, your, your Henderson's, your, your Eurospars, your, your, your super values, um, where is the threat to the single market? And there isn't one. There just isn't one. So why are you going to impose restrictions? Which, for, as a consequence of those restrictions, will add thousands of pounds to every loy load of food that comes to Northern Ireland. And people who are living in Strabane and Uri, in Lisburn and Portadown, um, with some of the lowest disposable incomes anywhere um, in Great Britain or anywhere in the United Kingdom, um, people who are being driven to food banks um, because they're already struggling to meet the cost of food will be affected further as a consequence of the application of rules uh, which are entirely unnecessary uh, to protect the single market. And, you know, that's, that, that is the argument here. It's a very clear argument, very cogent argument, very consistent argument. Does it impact upon the single market? If it doesn't impact upon the single market, well, why do you want to impose this? And I, I do think that taking it away from the, all of the political arguments that are going on about Brexit and all of that there, um, and moving it to that um, discussion amongst professionals will probably deliver more for us. Okay, Philip. On the, right. on the E, sorry, on the EU um, inspectors. Sorry, yeah, if you look at this from the perspective of the EU, and I think you have to, um, the UK, Northern Ireland, are leaving <coughs> the EU, becoming a third country on the 31st of December at 11 o'clock. And from their perspective, and some member states are really worried about this, is that they are concerned that Northern Ireland, Chief Veterinary Officer, will not implement the SPS official controls at the points of entry correctly. And the Commission are receiving from CVOs across Europe concerns that the UK will not do what they have signed up to do, which is to implement the Northern Ireland Protocol SPS checks. And that's why they're coming to watch me. It's not dual control. They're not coming to inspect. They're coming to watch, uh, to, to report back to the Commission so the Commission can reassure other member states that I'm doing my job properly. And my attitude to this is to welcome them to, and to make them a cup of tea and make them feel part of the team. And uh, if I can convince them quite quickly that <coughs> we are doing the job as they would wish it to be done, then I don't think this arrangement will last very long. But that's what it's about. It's about trying to reassure the member states. Because as far as they're concerned, they have handed over the controls of their external borders to a third country. It's the first time they've ever done it. And they're concerned about it, and concerned that that third country actually carries out uh, in good faith those controls uh, that they asked to do. So this is the thing. This is the the two horses I'm trying to ride at the moment. I want to be sensible, fle flexible, and pragmatic. Um, but I also need to obey the law. Otherwise, um, they will take action uh, against me in particular. I mean, I'm pretty sure that the, the EU uh, uh, will, will come to trust you, Robert. It's easy to understand why they would have a lack of trust maybe in the British government. Well, yeah. uh, thank you for that. And uh, John? Uh, thank you, Chair. 
Good to see you back, Minister, and like others, can I wish you well and uh, good health for the times ahead. Uh, <clears throat> the, the processes, Chair, and, and uh, procedures around EU exit uh, and the food supply chain, agriculture and agri-food are still evolving and could be influenced by events in the coming hours and days. But we've touched on some of them today in relation to the food supply chain and, and the supply of potatoes in Northern Ireland. Can I ask specifically, and I have another question and I'm well for to follow, but can I ask specifically on that one, um, are there processes in place to keep people informed over the, the Christmas break? For example, I have potato distribution uh, centres in my own constituency who are, who are very concerned about the pending deadline um, the future for, for them bringing potatoes in from whether chipping and seed potatoes from Scotland and England. But I'm very mindful that we're about to enter a holiday period and some of these people will be worried. So are, are there mechanisms to keep people informed over the Christmas break? Yeah, there's been considerable uh, efforts in terms of informing uh, business in particular. Maybe Dennis will, will update you on, on what, what has been going on there. So we've had um, we've had a series of uh, webinars, and um, one of the, I suppose one of the challenges in the midst of a negotiation, and we're still in a negotiation, has been keeping everything up to date. Um, but we've always taken the view that, uh, as as we've done at the committee here as well, that we'll just tell it like it is, and tell it. And when we don't know something, we've just said that. Um, but we had um, we've had three workshops now. Um, we've had um, roughly twelve hundred attendees. Um, at those workshops. Uh, we open them up to everybody. We encourage everybody to come along. We put them on our website as well afterwards so that people can see what we're saying. Um, so over the uh, coming period, we are, we, as I said previously, we are operating our major emergency response plan, which is really about making sure that our communication is working um, in a fast-moving situation like this. Um, and uh, one of the consequences of that is we have our we have morning meetings. We call them going command meetings. Uh, we have those every day, um, including they have been running this morning as well. Um, and uh, at the minute, we're running them on six days a week. Um, so what what we're trying to do is um, two things. I suppose we're giving out the information as it comes out from the negotiations or across from Defra. Um, and the other piece is about uh, we're we're putting together. A question and answer briefing. So every time a business asks us a question, whatever it's about, no matter how big or small, we put that into a question and answer and we put it on our website. And that's to make sure we tailor it as far as we can. So the aim is to, to be, I think, I, I'm just, just so that um, nobody's in any doubt. I mean, we, we came to this committee and we said it was going to be that we were red amber to start with, if you remember the first yeah. briefing. Um, and then we, we came when we said it was red. I think we've improved based on the hard work that people have done. But there are, as you say, John, outstanding issues. And I suppose the main thing now is making sure that we communicate because we need to make sure all the parts work together and we also make, need to make sure that businesses are aware. We may not be able to solve the problems for some of those businesses if they're, if they're outside our control, but we will tell them exactly what we know. Okay, thank you. Thanks for that. Uh, Chair, in addition to that, there have been concerns raised as well about the, the handling and holding of animals, the processes that will be developed in common weeks there was some publicity uh, as well recently um, about sheep and lambs held in Scotland, for example. So I'm keen to know, are, are we in a position now where we know the processes are in place, that, that things will be secure and safe um, come the, the deadline? I think Robert should pick up on that, sir. So the, the numbers of consignments that are currently coming in to Northern Ireland of livestock are two to three consignments, and that's all animals. 
uh, two to three consignments uh, a day, both into Larne and into Belfast. Uh, and livestock can only come in through Larne. Uh, we have not. Uh, we have our existing facilities in place. We're hoping to extend those. Those won't be in place, but I'm confident that we will have the facilities to handle the animals safely. Um, otherwise, we wouldn't be opening them, quite, quite frankly. But uh, who knows, with all the complexities of um, the certificates and tariffs, uh, where future um, supply lines are going to when it comes to live animals. At the moment, I suspect there's going to be no animals for breeding, uh, cattle, sheep, livestock, coming into Northern Ireland because of the certificate. So, you know, it could be even less than two or three per day. Um, there'll still be the horses and others, uh, and we're prepared for those. But um, of all the things I'm worried about, the welfare of the animals is not one. I'm confident that's, that's looked after. Well, just, just following that, what about, I'm just thinking, Robert, the, the welfare of the animals in Scotland? The, the, the yews in Scotland that come over because they're, they're on farms over there and you know farmers over there will want them off the farm. Yeah. And, and that will be a matter for my colleagues and local authorities and yeah. APHA and, and GB and they are aware of it. Um, I can assure you the Scottish CVO is very aware of these, of these issues. Sure. If I could come back, um, well, sorry, in an additional month, there's been um, some publicity and what would appear to be positive movement on the uh, resolution of fishing issues and the landing of, of catch at Northern Ireland ports. Can I ask if we can be, um, if not available today, happy to brief separately or send the information? Can we be told what the processes are that have been put in place in relation to the, the landing of catches and also how they then can be exported? Minister, with your agreement, sure, yeah. just to say um, this is something we, we're putting together. We're looking at the statement very carefully. We're also just checking our legal position, and we'll be putting advice to the minister in the very near future um, on this issue and how this will work. But um, I, I'm certainly officials, when, when we have a bit of uh, clarity about that, again, making the point that it's a very fast-moving situation, when we have a bit of clarity about that, I'm sure officials will be very happy to come back and brief the committee on that. Um, so I'm sorry, it's, uh, it's just the nature of where we are at this point in the year and the fact that the statement came out uh, when it did. It's given us a bit of food for thought. And assuming, sure that the sector will be uh, informed as well Absolutely. as soon as things are clear, Absolutely. yeah? Absolutely. Thank you. Thanks, yeah. okay. Um, okay, for that. Um, we'll move around. Claire? Claire Billy? Chair, if you will move around. Yeah, yeah, the Minister can hear you. I'm not going back, Minister. It's um, good to see you back so quickly and I hope you have a, a speedy recovery as well. Um, we're 14 days away from the end of this transition period um, and still we've got the UK government money to sign off on this Prime Minister's promise of an open ready deal and we all face so many uncertainties and unknowns, as you're well aware. Um, but we're hearing now that the UK government will give supermarkets a grace period of three months for export, or sorry, export certificates, and six months, I believe, for the easement of movements, particularly in chilled goods and that. Can I ask you, um, Minister, do you know if that will apply to all traders, or is that solely for supermarkets? 
It is for wider retailers of food. Uh, so it is a UK decision, but it'll probably apply to around 14 or 15 companies, not, not, not three. It's not specific it'll, it'll be beyond supermarkets. Um, so right. it, it will cover your, 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 your more convenience type stores as well. Okay, and the, the term trusted trader and the command paper and the term authorised trader, are they the same, the same thing? I think so. Trusted trader is a carryover from a scheme that we were, the UK were proposing to the EU and it's got carried over in the, in the, in the language within the, uh, the, the UK unilateral statement. But it is for supermarket goods. Um, there is no dictionary definition of supermarket, so we're defining it widely, as, as the Minister has said, as retail food, uh, to try and catch uh, all of those businesses within, within the business. The responsibility for, carry, for putting this together uh, lies with DEFRA, uh, and they're talking to us uh, extensively on, on the list, and it's hoped that that list will be published probably today, if not tomorrow. Thank you. Yeah, in the command paper, then it, it mentions that um, it will be DERA. Uh, DERA will undertake a rapid identifications exercise by the end of 2020. So I'm just wondering if you could give us an update on where the department are on that. This is identifying businesses. Is this? Um, well, we're, we're well progressed because that's the business of that's the process of feeding in suppliers and others into DEFRA, so they have a full list. So then decisions can be made uh, about who is on the list and who isn't, because obviously that will be a, a very difficult decision. But, but as the Minister says, that will be a, a decision for the UK Government. Yeah. Okay. Thank you. And I just hope that you could give us a bit of detail on what environmental risks we will be facing here, or if any have been identified. And I'm just thinking in particular that there will be no Office of Environmental Protection established or operational until July. Um, but is there any comment on the readiness in, in general, I suppose, about other aspects of the Environment Bill? Yeah, well, well, we took steps um, to ensure that environmental protection continues um, in advance of the Office of Environmental Protection um, being fully operational. Um, in terms of environmental risks, well, one of the issues that I would have a concern about in relation to the protocol is uh, the transshipment of waste. Um, so there is quite a amount of waste that is imported uh, to Northern Ireland from GB. It is further processed. Um, um, re and sent for, for, for recycling and uh, there is issues around that and there's issues around uh, waste that also goes from Northern Ireland to GB um, so on all of that there um, those are still issues that we're having discussions on. Okay and then sort of in terms of state aid, um, environmental deregulation could constitute I suppose unfair advantage to Northern Ireland manufacturers um, do you feel the same, or what risks are contingency plans provide on this? Well, well there's no, no, no plans for any environmental deregulation uh, in the first instance. Um, so, you know, and, and you know, deregulating for a matter of months before OEP would would, would kick into place uh, would would stand up to, to new logic, um, particularly given the current mode of direction. We remain um, part of the single market. Um, so 
uh, the goods that, that are to be produced for the single market are, are goods which will have the same standards applied to them. Um, so I don't believe that there's any risk of environmental deregulation. Okay. I noticed on your website listed then just under the role of Habitat's Regulation Amendment and um, 2020 has been published. Um, it's going to be there as a natural resource policy division who will now decide imperative reasons for overriding public interest. I'm just wondering if you could let me know a few details of why that move has been made. Well, in, ter in terms of all of this, um, I, I suppose uh, we have the, the, the Natural Environment Division within uh, NIEA uh, who have a level of expertise, probably the highest level of expertise anywhere in Northern Ireland. Uh, for dealing with these issues, uh, so where it is matters of public interest, they, they would be the people best placed to respond to it. And the, the, also, then, does Darren and I have the right to amend the existing SACs and SPAs? Um, I, I'll need to follow up on that, but I, I, I think uh, I, I don't think. I, sorry, I suppose one more general statement. We put through a whole range of legislation, as you know, around um, environmental legislation, which because the committee's obviously been working on that. Um, and uh, our approach on this has been to get ourselves a working rulebook on day one. We have not been seeking to make substantive policy changes where necessary and in the you know until we get the full governance arrangements in place through OEP, we're obviously wanting to make sure that we, we have the powers in place to be able to do what's necessary from an environmental protection point of view. But uh, so I'll, I'll look into that issue, just that specific issue to see if this is if there's a particular um, concern. But uh, the general principle here is that we are maintaining the, uh, the working legislative rulebook as it was. Uh, there's, no, there's no prospect of us starting to undo SPA, SACs and so forth. Uh, those are courses of work that have been done over a long period of time. Um, there are areas that have been recognised because of their uh, special characteristics. Uh, and, you know, just because you could uh, doesn't mean you, you, you would. Uh, and there's just no desire whatsoever uh, to do that. Okay. Thank you. Okay. Um, Patsy? Move along. Patsy? Okay. We'll move to Harry and then we can come back to Patsy because he, he has his electronic hand up here in the, in the machine. Okay. All right. Thank you very much, Chair. Okay. Sure. Very well. Oh, Patsy, can you hear us now? Yeah, can you hear me now? Yeah. Oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Go for it. First of all, just um, just on a regular personal level, to, to give all the best wishes there to Edwin, uh, related to see him back in harness again. And uh, at the helm, so uh, best wishes to you, Edwin, and to your family for, for Christmas there. Hopefully, you have a very good one. Um, so, could we just move on to the issues around the, the EU now? Um, I'm obviously getting some nervousness that's been expressed to me by, at a number of levels uh, by farmers concerned that there may be shortfall uh, to the department as a consequence of, of Brexit, any shortfall in funding that may lead to implications for their payments further down the line. So I'm interested to hear from the Minister uh, what reassurance have been given around that. Also, I had a uh, phone call, or sorry, about a meeting last night. A number of the councillors uh, that were on the meeting are part of the lives, and again, there's uh, concern been expressed at that level about any potential implications for 
rural development funds because they, those have contributed the EU rural development funds that Pillar has contributed very substantially to, uh, to all businesses and uh, within, within our rural areas. Um, basically, that John John earlier there is that move keep and uh, the whole issue of uh, year old sheep and the, the ability and capacity to move them across uh, <clears throat> um, here the, the one farmer is going to calculate his, his investment in the stock amounts to over £700,000 worth and he's, he's very very concerned about the capacity to move that over uh, on him there from the UK. Um, Finally one for, for Robert, um, this, is, this has been raised with me separately as well, um, the vet recruitment issue and how that's moving along and uh, we'll maybe just give an update on that and finally maybe for later on in the meeting um, Minister the support, well it's not a year related but uh, I'll find out now <clears throat> the support for fishermen and Lockney I know you've been doing some work on that over, over this last phase so uh, Chair, thanks very much indeed. Those are my questions. Uh, okay, the, okay. The, the first one is in relation to EU funding or replacement EU funding. In terms of single farm payment, that has been uh, replaced in full, so in terms of, of farmers, there isn't an issue. I'm going to bring Norman in to explain um, there is £34 million that we are in dispute uh, with the UK government on. Um, Scotland and, and Wales are also in dispute and uh, the English regions are, are also impacted by it. Um, but Norman, Norman will come in and explain the background to it. It is money that hadn't been spent, but, but money that was intended to be spent. And uh, th therein lies the problem, and, and tre Treasury, in, in, in my opinion, um, are just being a wee bit tricky um, and a wee bit clever by half just on it. Um, but Norman, perhaps, if you can come in there. Yeah, uh, thank you, Minister. So yes, this is, I suppose, a, a technical issue. Uh, as the Minister said, uh, the, uh, the Treasurer taking a particular approach to this one. So in terms of moving forward, uh, we certainly argue that the commitment here was a full replacement of all EU funds uh, from, uh, from 2020 moving forward. Uh, the approach that has been taken by the Treasury is to actually net off uh, some of the remaining, well, all of the remaining EU funds that will be coming uh, to Northern Ireland and other parts of the UK through the rural development programmes uh, out until they're in 2023. And so for us, uh, that means there's about £34 million still to come uh, through the uh, priority measures out to their completion. And that amount then has been netted off uh, the, the overall uh, headline figure for replacement uh, funding for, for agriculture uh, and uh, environmental development. And that's where the 34 million figure comes from. We would argue that uh, had we remained uh, within the EU, there would have been a fresh allocation uh, from the 2021 to 27 EU budget. Uh, and therefore, uh, it's not appropriate to have that, uh, that particular mechanism in place. Um, so that's, that's the issue uh, that uh, we continue to uh, press our case, uh, and the Minister has been doing this uh, very vigorously, along with the other DA Ministers, um, uh, into counterparts in, in Whitehall. Thank you for so just at this moment in time, are you going to anticipate, sorry, is the position that we're 34 million down over that project? 
the 21, 27 period for your development? Is that, a, is that a clear position that the bank was done that correctly? It's a case that we're, we believe the 34 million uh, pounds down from where we would uh, have expected to be. Uh, but I would, what I would say is that uh, we continue to run out the current <coughs> development program. Uh, it runs to completion in 2023, and therefore, in terms of issue areas like the lags, uh, those plans yeah. will continue to completion. Uh, so there's no question uh, around that and, and their ability to actually run out the current rural development program. In terms of the sheep, I think we'll have covered that, and, and it's an ongoing issue that we're continuing to work on. Um, Loch Ney, um, I, I have been pressing to get um, the, the paper. Um, I'm hoping to get it, I think. Next. Yeah, there's, there's a paper due up with the Minister today, um, and uh, I'm just having a, a quick look over that. So that's, uh, the Minister's been pushing to, to get the scheme finalised, and um, we're, we're going to come back with some, uh, and I'd ask some made some queries and we've just we're kind of come back uh, today with that. Okay. Is there a time frame for, for that there? Because uh, I have not sure what's going preempted you there. <laughs> well, I, I, I think in fairness, I think in fairness to the minister, uh, it's uh, uh, it's my obviously as officials we have to get the paper to him and then he need to consider that. And uh, um, as as you probably worked out with the minister, he will uh, make up his own mind. Um, based on the advice he gets, and we'll uh, need to just uh, give, uh, give space for that. It's transpired to be a bit more complex than um, perhaps initially thought, but anyway, I think we'll, we can get there, not too distant, to be sure. Yeah, I would appreciate that, uh, Edward, please, because there are a lot of people who didn't have income from fishing over that particular season and stopped fishing in anticipation that this scheme was going to come very quickly, or relatively quickly, and we're still in the Christmas and it hasn't appeared. Well, uh, 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 on a bit of good news on that, that, that front, the, the 
EU-Japanese trade deal will be something which will be beneficial because the Japanese are very fond of eating eels, and uh, that, that, that trade deal will, will, will help that, that, that particular business. Okay, thanks for that. Thank you. Uh, uh, all right. Sorry, Bob. Robert. Very, very quickly, um, within my own group, as I said today, I am 30 vets below my head count. Um, eight coming off the last exercise will bring my deficiency down to 22, and we've started another, another uh, recruitment exercise. But it does give me a chance to say how proud I am of all my veterinary staff, and I, in fact all the staff, and how hard they're working at the moment. Um, my field resource is lower than it ever was, down to 31 to, to deliver all the animal health and welfare in the field, uh, along with the veterinary public health part. And my senior team, uh, there was a question about what we're doing over Christmas. Most of us are working over Christmas. Um, there's, there's no let up this year. Um, I've put two weeks into my uh, leaf folder, secretary. I don't expect to get any of it, <laughs> I think, is the uh, expectations. Hi. Okay. Thank you, Chair, and very welcome, <coughs> Minister. Minister, would you agree that um, the UK and EU agreement reached last week around the protocol provides little flexibility for Northern Ireland and falls short? of the needs of NI. Just wondering what discussions have you had, Minister, with your counterparts to highlight Northern Ireland concerns? Over the course of the thank you for, for, for the question, Hi, over the course of the, the summer or the autumn, um, the, there has been a constancy of um, telephone conversations, meetings and letters highlighting um, our concerns. And uh, we'll have we'll have a file of, of, of documentation that has um, changed hands at ministerial level, um, and then there has been another um, piece of work done at um, official level. So there is nothing in this that um, UKG could not have been forewarned um, of issues that were arising from the protocol, and you know, quite frankly, I've been making a nuisance of myself. I. I uh, make no apology for making a nuisance of myself, um, because we need to mitigate and ameliorate um, those damaging aspects of the protocol. Now, I have also indicated that there are beneficial aspects of the protocol, um, in particular those which um, gives us access um, to both the, the GB and the EU market. And indeed, should there end up not being a deal between the GB and the EU, Northern Ireland is in a particular place where it can sell uh, product to um, the GB without tariffs. It can sell product to EU without tariffs, um, where no one else, either in, in European Union or indeed in, in Great Britain, um, can do that. So um, there is a potential advantage position in that respect. Uh, but in order to take up that advantage position, we need to ameliorate and mitigate against those disadvantage positions. Uh, some of it is complete nonsense, you know. The fact that you have a, a pet um, travelling with you to, to Scotland to, to visit relatives and coming back home again, um, that that pet is going to have to get a rabies vaccine whenever there is no rabies in this island. Uh, it's just wrong that that's the case, the, the threat of tapeworm. And Robert has been put in an, an invidious position um, where, 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 you know, where, where that applies. 
Um, the same applies to what discussed the potatoes, um, the, the, the raw meat that is coming in from um, you know, the sides that's coming in from factories in England to be treated here and, and, and processed here and, and going back. Those things are all just a nonsense. But nonetheless, um, they are issues which we have to try to deal with, that we have to try to mitigate, that we have to try to reduce. There is going to be a relatively small number of checks at, 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 at Belfast and Lauren, to be perfectly honest. They are going to be a relatively small number of checks. And those checks um, will be relatively straightforward. And they will apply only to food. They will not apply to individuals. Um, they will apply to food and animals. Um, they will not apply to, to individuals. They will not apply um, to your televisions and all of that stuff. Uh, it is purely stuff which falls under the category of SPS. And this is about protecting the single market. Um, you know, we have been locked into the single market, um, so, so that, that is the circumstance that we find ourselves in. Uh, but nonetheless, I believe that we can put forward cogent, um, rational arguments as to how this can be done in a way which does protect the single market, um, does no violence to it whatsoever, um, but at the same time, um, does no violence to the consumers in Northern Ireland who ultimately will fit the bill. Every person in Northern Ireland, every consumer in Northern Ireland will fit the bill if we don't get these things resolved. So I welcome the fact that the can has been kicked down the road a bit, that we don't face this cliff edge on the 1st of January, uh, but I don't want to be facing a cliff edge on the 1st of April and the 1st of July on, on these issues. Um, that is not a beneficial position. Uh, so we really need to, over the course of January, February, March, April, May, June, uh, seek to you know, resolve these issues in a, in a firmer way. Um, and I hope that that will be the case. Okay. Thank you very much, Minister. Yeah. Um, we'll let Morris in before William here. Morris is in the list. Morris, can you hear us there? Yes, thank you, Chair. Uh, and thank you very much, Minister, for coming to the party this morning. Uh, and what's your best wishes for a continuation of your good health? Uh, Minister, you had alluded in your, in your uh, opening remarks about the UK government's commitment to supporting uh, business trade uh, to Northern Ireland and GB. Can you expand upon this week up for us, please? Well, GB to, NI to GB trade remains unaffected. Um, so, so that, that, that is positive. There was indications at, at one point that um, the EU wanted to get involved in that. Um, they didn't have any right to get involved, um, and ultimately um, that won't be affected. Um, GB to NI trade uh, is over 50% of the, the trading that we do, and you know, a significant element of it is around food. So, you know, you've got your massive companies, there, the Nestle's and the Procter's and Gamble's and so forth. Um, who are providing um, groceries, um, and, and the, the supermarkets will have those businesses, um, which they have done for many years. Uh, so, you know, the UK government is very supportive of that trade continuing um, unaffected. Uh, we have got this um, period of, of three months, and it is important that we use that period of three months um, to demonstrate unequivocally um, to the European Union that this poses no threat to the single market and for um, our government uh, to ensure that they fight very hard uh, to ensure that trade is unaffected. Uh, because ultimately, I think we all want to ensure that um, costs to the consumers um, of that grocery basket 
it, it does not go up that it, that it is maintained uh, where it is uh, as closely aligned to that as, as currently as is possible. Uh, so a piece of work that needs to continue with the UK government, with the, the Joint Negotiating Committee, and indeed with our officials who are working with officials both in GB and the EU. Okay, Morris. Um, okay, Morris, Go ahead, Morris. Yep. Well, there's been considerable discussion on this one, and uh, in particular, meat was a, was a, a really big issue because the tariffs on meat could be 40%, and what's to stop a lorry driving from Poland, you know, where beef is cheaper, um, coming in through the, the Republic of Ireland up through uh, Belfast and, and, and into GB. So uh, it, it is going to be meat that is killed um, or slaughtered in Northern Ireland. Uh, so ROI beef. Um, that is slaughtered in Northern Ireland will have access um, to the, the GB market uh, untariffed, uh, but ROI beef that is slaughtered in the Republic of Ireland um, should uh, that should there be no trade deal um, will be subject to tariffs. Uh, so the, the impact of that is going to be huge, and the consequences of of um, there not being a trade deal. Um, for the Republic of Ireland, and particularly for its food industry, um, will, will, will be very negative. Uh, so I do hope that common sense will prevail and that a trade deal um, will come into place. Because uh, I don't think it's in anybody's interest that, that the Republic of Ireland tick the point that, that they will tick uh, on their agri-food side um, should uh, no trade uh, deal be established. Yeah, go for it, Mars. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Just Robert had alluded to his 38 bets from 30 to 22, and uh, I know I brought it up at a previous committee meeting about the possibility of a veterinary college in Korean uh, to produce bets for the entirety of, of Ireland, North and South. Has it any more thought been taken on this? Yeah. Yes, there has. And Robert has been engaging in discussions um, with the universities. Uh, on the back of that, I intend to write to the universities to invite them um, to, to come and talk to us uh, about what their plans would be uh, to develop a veterinary, veterinary school. Um, for me, I think it's given Northern Ireland's position in producing um, around 11% of, of the, the food. Uh, for, for the entire United Kingdom and the fact that we punch above our weight in that sector. Um, having our own veterinary school would be something which would be hugely advantageous to the entirety of the sector. Thank you very much, Thank you, Chair. Um, just briefly for Brenda William, just on Morris had touched on the, on the back door question, which I had in my head as well. I wonder, is there any elaboration on how the avoidance measures Will be implemented, and what precisely the avoidance measures are to protect the north. Maybe, maybe Norman could uh, touch on that. Huh? Norman. Yeah. Norman, can you come in on that? Norman. 
the anti-avoidance measures. Uh, yeah. I'll be there, apologies. Um, so yes, the anti-avoidance measures uh, will be introduced, uh, I think, through the taxation bill. We don't yet have line of sight of the, the, the practical outworkings of that. Um, and so that's something that uh, we still have to wait and see uh, the details uh, of that. Uh, but certainly for the first six months, um, we have a uh, approach to unfettered access, uh, where effectively goods that are present uh, in Northern Ireland uh, will have unfettered access uh, to GP. Um, and so that's, that's uh, termed the first phase. Uh, what comes beyond that uh, still has to be determined. Norman, uh, um, is there a danger of any disruption to trade between the North and Britain if there has to be some sort of checks to segregate what qualifies and what doesn't qualify? Well, this, at this point in time, there's, there's no um, uh, indication of, of that. Uh, say it's uh, whatever is present in, in Northern Ireland uh, will have unfettered access, and so there's no uh, plans for any uh, physical or customs presence uh, in Belfast uh, at this point in time. Um, so uh, it's, it's what comes beyond that. Um, obviously, the uh, significance of that unfettered access uh, route uh, is going to be very heavily influenced by the existence or not of a free trade agreement. Uh, so we still have to wait and see the outcome uh, of that as well. Uh, and I suppose the final bit of the jigsaw uh, is the, uh, the, the extent of uh, any SPS checks uh, after that first six month period that might apply to uh, agri food produce uh, coming up from uh, Republic of Ireland and uh, routine through, uh, through Belfast. Uh, so, again, yeah, that's something that uh, we still don't have a line of sight on. Uh, just, just on that, it might be worth clarifying that there are no plans whatsoever for us to put in place SPS checks um, on the side of the Irish Sea. So uh, we'll need to see, as, as Norman says, we'll need to see what the UK approach is going to be yeah. on that. But just, just so there's no misunderstanding about that. Well, that's good because I think obviously you want unfettered trade in every direction. But you know, sometimes I think you know how. How do you know that a lorry load of beef is just beef that's produced here in the north that's not mixed origin? You know, how can that be done without checks or without some measures to these anti-avoidance measures to, to ascertain that? Well, I think I mean the the key point that the key representations at the official level that we've been making has been about making sure that um, you know we're we're um, reflecting the industry's concerns and the industry's concerns are getting the right balance between on the one hand unfettered access but on the other hand um, keeping a fair le level playing field so that uh, our businesses are not being um, uh, a detriment because because others are coming in through the back door. Certainly. Our position with the UK government is very clear that Northern Ireland should not become some place where illegal trade takes place yeah. um, which allows food to go into to GB without the appropriate tariffs. Uh, so tariffs be applicable. Okay. Um, William, you're looking back in again. Yeah, thank you very much, Mr Chairman. In relation to the grace period and products that are, are allowed to is potatoes included in that grace period or not? Not 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 potatoes with skins. In relation to uh, a no trade deal and let's hope that we all hope that doesn't happen, but if that happens, um, our account has to pay tariffs to get their beef into the UK. Does not leave an open door for the beef to come through Northern Ireland to? Well, it, it can only be beef which is um, killed and processed in Northern Ireland. Um, so it, it can't be beef which is killed in, the, in, in Ireland and then 
um, imported through here? Yeah, I understand that fully, but if there's no checks from the site, that could be very hard to... Well, there is traceability on beef, and, and the key markets there um, are, are the, is, is the supermarket trade, food service trade, although it's, it's um, probably in, in terms of lockdowns, everything's happened, the, the food service trade has become um, a smaller proportion um, over the course of the last nine months. Uh, but uh, in, in terms of it, the, the, the discussion that has taken place, the arrangement that is, ta that, that, that is put in place, is that it is to be animals which are slaughtered um, in Northern Ireland. So it will um, give little grace to, to some of the ROI producers, probably put pressure on our plants. Um, but um, if, if you end up with, with a, a, a no-deal scenario, um, perhaps as a consequence of, of, of driving beef prices, Milk prices as well upwards here. Um, that remains to be seen because if there's tariffs applied to materials which would normally have been coming from Poland, France, and so forth, um, then that's that's liable to lead to to, to, to a rise in, in, in the market. Thank you. Okay then. Well, I want to take this opportunity, Minister. Thank you. I'm conscious that you're, you're moving on to next meeting and. You've extended, uh, we're very glad that you were able to extend your stay with us um, and answer the questions along with uh, Dennis and Robert and Norman. Mark has been there as well. Um, so we'll, uh, we'll, we'll, we'll not be seeing you until the, uh, the, um, the, 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 the new year again. So I want to wish you all a very Merry Christmas and a very safe Christmas, a very quiet Christmas. Thank you, and, and <laughs> I wish, wish you all a, a, a Merry Christmas, and that as we move to the new year, I hope that this um, vaccination will get rolled out to the most vulnerable people, um, enabling others to perhaps have a greater level of normality, and has been the case um, over the course of 2020, and that uh, with a whole series of different problems to deal with in 2021, but one of them isn't the, the perpetual COVID one. <laughs> Thank you all very much, Thank and, uh, and I think Dennis, uh, you back with the fourteenth, is it the fourteenth? Uh, if you say so, I'll, uh, <laughs> I'll take your word for that. The fourteenth, uh, uh, right. uh, back with New Year. So, um, okay. so I want to thank uh, thank you all very much, Sad, and uh, uh, happy Christmas. And thank you. Thank you very much. Again, okay. Thank you, Chair. Okay. <clears throat> We'll move on then, folks, on the agenda. Um, item two on the agenda is apologies. We don't we don't have any apologies. Um, um, item three on the agenda uh, is chairperson's business. Um, Want to uh, refer members to the note of the inform meeting, which um, with the Youth Climate Action NA with myself and Philip and Claire attended on the fourth of December. A link has been included in the note. Can I agree to agreement to circulate the presentation to the committees for infrastructure and economy, asking that the relevant department leads uh, to meet with the representatives of the YCANA to discuss climate change? Okay, are we okay to note the, this meeting? Uh, can I refer members to the correspondence and speaker's office as in relation to the public potential position presented by Rachel Woods 
on MLA and the Assembly on the 14th of December. Members will be aware the public petition is calling on the dear Minister to bring forward similar legislation to Lucy's Law, which came into effect in England in April of this year. The Speaker has also written to the Minister on this issue. Okay. Uh, the draft minutes, uh, they're at uh, pages 40 to 49. Are we okay for me to sign the minutes? Okay. So item six on the agenda. Is, yeah. Okay, uh, so item six on the agenda is an oral briefing from the department on the January monitoring round. Um, uh, just before I move on to the briefing from the department, can I advise members that the Finance Committee were due to receive an oral briefing on the budget statement yesterday, but were informed uh, that the budget paper was brought to the executive last week but did not get on to the agenda. The Finance Minister has indicated that he is looking to have the paper table today. It is the Minister's intention to get the draft budget discussed and agreed because Otherwise, it will be the second week in January before it can be agreed. I've agreed the Minister intends to make a statement as soon as the meeting is complete and an oral briefing at the first plenary session of the Assembly. The final budget must be laid by mid-February in order to have sufficient time to lay the budget bill by the end, before the end of March. So the briefing of the Department is page 52 to 53. I want to welcome by Starleaf David Ray, the Grade 5 Finance Director, Roger Downey, the 6th Deputy Finance Director, and Linda Lowe, Grade 7 Head of Financial Planning. And I want to advise the officials to begin their briefing on the January monitoring round, and members then will be able to ask questions thereafter. Okay. Yeah, loud and clear, David. That's great, thank you. Chair, thank you for the opportunity to present the Bureau's proposal on the 2021 General Monitoring Round today. The General Monitoring Round is the last opportunity in the financial year for the Department to set its budget. Its importance cannot be underestimated as it is the, this budget position that our professional white firm is just against. The final budget also has the spring supplementary estimate position, which under the Budget Act provides the legal authority to spend. And this is the position against which the annual accounts are compared. As you will be aware from the briefing that you have received, there is not submitting any bits in this room or transactions which require formal approval, such as reclassifications, reductions, and reallocations. You will be aware that there provokes us to declare 4.4 million of reduced ring fence resource L non cash depreciation in this room. This is largely as a result of the change in the application of an accounting policy following a review of the capitalization of intangible assets. Technical issues relate to the agreed interdepartmental transfers. So on resource deal, the main transfer is to waiting from the Department of Health in respect of AFP's testing of patient samples for COVID-19. On capital deal, there is one main transfer of 1.3 million the Department for Communities for the Town Centre and Rural Settlements Revitalisation Program. Amy or Ainley Managed Expenditure primarily relates to non-cash issues in there, such as provisions for depreciation. There is only one Amy transaction proposed in this round in respect of the Forest Service. Non-budget relates primarily, primarily to the movement of cash in arms length bodies, and there are no material changes proposed in this round. Chair, this concludes my summary of the Department's proposals for general monitoring, and we welcome the committee's views and I'm happy to take any questions. Um, okay, thank you. Um, I suppose um, one of the questions that that we all, we're all asking is, you know, why was there why was there no bid submitted to to January monitoring? You know, there there 
So there, there, there are pressures out there. Um, and could you just be absolutely clear on that? There, why, why was there no bids submitted to January monitoring? Well, as part of the general monitoring process, Chair, the department reviews its financial requirements for the remainder of the year. And uh, as part of that process, um, normally we don't identify any um, additional pressures against which we would require additional funding. So on that basis, no bids were submitted. And has COVID any impact on the, the January monitoring? Um, that would be one of the things specifically we would, we would have considered, but as part of the process, um, it's probably worth reflecting that across the uh, the course of 2020, the department's allocated about 46 million to COVID, and the minister set out some of those actions earlier. So we were looking to see if there were further interventions that would be required in the current financial year. And at this stage, no further interventions have been identified. But, but that's something that we will keep on to review, and then obviously as well, in the next year, um, we'll consider whether or not there are additional COVID requirements um, for next year as well. Okay, Rosemary. Yeah. Uh huh. Um, can you tell me what the reason was for your one one point three million capital Dell transfer to the DFC? Yes, during the year, and again, I think um, and, uh, my ask Roger just to correct me from on this, but during the year we had um, uh, an agreement to support um, funding with DFC for the town centre and rural settlements revitalisation program. And again, that was in response to COVID, so um, DFC is leading on that, and we're basically contributing funding to it. I think the total funding that we've contributed across the year, including this 1.3 million, is like 2.3 million. I'll just double check with Roger to confirm that they were separate. Thanks. Uh, yes, that's correct. I think, I think DFC are also contributing about 10 million, uh, so uh, our element was, was 2.3. Okay. okay. Happy Rosemary? Yeah. Members, okay. I'll uh, take the opportunity then to thank you, Roger and Linda and David, for coming on uh, this morning. And um, um, okay, so members, okay, to support the department's proposal of the January monitoring round. Okay, right, thank you very much. Um, we're going to move on to the next item on the agenda. It's an oral briefing, a discussion document on climate change. Uh, a written briefing from the department at uh, pages 55 to 62, correspondence is 63 to 65, and a copy of the discussion document is 66 to 115. On Starleaf, we have Owen Little, Grade 5 Director of Environmental Policy, Arlene McGowan, Environmental Policy Division, Climate Change Branch, Grade 7. And I'd like to take the opportunity to ask Owen and Arlene to commence the briefing. Uh, good morning, uh, good morning. Chairman and members of the committee. Um, I would like to take this opportunity to come before you today to discuss the launch last week of the consultation on the public discussion document for a climate change bill. I am joined online by Arlene McGowan, who is part of the relatively newly formed climate change bill team within the Environment Policy Division. Uh, my own remarks will provide a summary of the discussion document, highlighting what I believe are the key areas. I will also provide an outline of the Climate Change Committee's SIP carbon budget the balanced pathway towards net zero for the UK by 2050 and its relationship with the discussion document and a climate change bill. Finally, I will talk briefly on some of the challenges facing the progress of a climate change bill in this mandate. The discussion document on a climate change bill for Northern Ireland was launched on Tuesday, 8 December 2020 and will remain open until 1st February 2021. Unfortunately, due to the challenge in timelines to deliver a bill within this mandate, in order to notification process, of the consultation launch was unable to be provided to this committee. 
Ideally, given the cross-cutting nature of climate change, the draft discussion document would also have been issued to other departments via an inter-departmental right round for their common prior to publication. However, the continued political and public urgency for progress and development and introduction of a climate change bill has meant that an opportunity has not been afforded to engage at this stage with other departments. The discussion document covers four broad areas. It provides and one, an overview of climate change strategic drivers and political and public agendas, both nationally and internationally. Two, the current policy and legal framework within Northern Ireland. Thirdly, Northern Ireland's current greenhouse gas emission status and Fourthly, the latest uh, rationale for options and policy proposals for a Northern Ireland Climate Change Bill and its content. Although the document does not introduce any new policies, the Minister has been keen to engage stakeholders from across the economy, society and the public and ensure requirements within the new, de new decade, new approach agreement are met. As the Climate Change Committee has stated, people have a vital role in delivering net zero. Even if a large part of delivery relates to technological and investment challenges, there will be most successful proposals are seen to be fair, but where people have been involved in developing proposed solutions. The Minister has also directed that this legislation is well informed and based on sound evidence and science. The Minister intends to use the findings from this discussion paper, along with the expert advice and updates from the Climate Change Committee, to develop proposals for a bill before taking them forward to the Northern Ireland Executive for their agreement. The timing of this public discussion document has, has to a certain degree, been linked with the publication of the Climate Change Committee's advice and reports in the sixth carbon budget and the balanced pathway to net zero. After the legislative change to the UK Climate Change Act 2008 in uh, 2019, last year, which brought in the UK net zero by 2050 target, we were aware that the committee's reports this time for the sixth carbon budget would have a lot more detail due to the addition of the net zero element and therefore have a key relevance to this uh, public discussion document. In addition, the Minister had written to the committee uh, seeking separate specific analysis and advice on Northern Ireland's fair contributions to the UK net zero target. This was also published last uh, Wednesday. The analysis in detail to reach net zero by 2050 for the UK is a global first and groundbreaking, uh, uh, groundbreaking bit of work by the committee as the over 1,000 pages of reports that were published last week testify. Within the public discussion document, there are a series of questions which essentially relate to the emission of a climate change reduction target, how that target should be expressed, uh, five yearly carbon budgets that could be used to set interim targets, reporting powers and duties, and views on an independent advisory body. The two options addressing ambition are fundamental. The first option, with a focus on an evidence-based target that may not see Northern Ireland meet net zero by 2050, but importantly provides an equitable contribution to UK net zero by 2050. Or the alternative option of pressing for Northern Ireland net zero by 2050 or indeed before that time. Whatever the course of action decided, the selected overarching target will substantially shape future programmes for government, budget and resourcing profiles, and the demands of citizens for the next three decades if we are truly committed to tackling climate change. It is therefore timely the recording of it. Climate Change Committee provides extensive evidence as to considerations that should be made in deciding between the two options. While the focus of the discussion paper and the future bill may seemingly revolve around emissions reductions and mainly mitigation, it is also important not to forget the need for adaptation plans. In light of our ongoing experience with dealing with the COVID-19 pandemic, resilience instead of adaptation may be a better descriptor for what needs to be done. Even if we meet net zero by 2050 and global temperatures increase to 1.5 degrees Celsius, the emissions already baked in 
will mean there will be further impacts from climate change beyond those already occurring today. Indeed, we need to be cognizant to be prepared for a higher global increase of 2 degrees Celsius or above. When delivering future mitigation strategies and plans, it will be important for them to reflect where adaptation can also be built in to provide wider effect and extra value for money. For instance, planting trees in a manner that also contributes to flood alleviation. Finally, before I close, I'll touch on the demanding timeline to introduce a bill in the remainder of the mandate. The next three months are critical. Assessment of the discussion document responses, policy development and draft instructions are required to get a bill for introduction by early April 2021 if this bill is to progress. This requires a certain amount of concurrency of activity and some seemingly expedient decisions, such as not afford you the committee for two weeks notice for this discussion document. Every day literally uh, counts, and actually the staff involved in the bill are again, like other parts of DEER, working over Christmas to, to deliver this. To, back, to, back, to provide you with reassurance that the department is taking to the delivery of this bill seriously, the bill work has been prioritised with an extra bill team allocated and other support services currently been put in place. We are also liaising closely with the Office of Legislative Council and TEO to ensure the timeline is achievable and can be met. In summary, I want to thank the committee again for providing us with the opportunity to engage in the discussion document. Climate change is a global challenge and a fundamental threat. The discussion do document provides the next step in delivering a climate change bill for Northern Ireland that addresses the call for action to address the climate emergency and an opportunity for Northern Ireland to contribute to the global response to tackling climate change. Thank you very much, Owen. Uh, Philip? Thank you. Thanks very much, Owen. Uh, and Chair, just before I, I, I make a few points to Owen, I mean, obviously we didn't get a chance to quiz the Minister on this very important uh, aspect of work. It might be a, a useful suggestion that we actually do invite the Minister back again uh, to talk about this and the other key priorities that we didn't get a chance to, to, to do. Uh, Owen, thank you very much. Uh, I mean, just in terms of going through the document, uh, I mean, and these are points I would have wanted to have made to the Minister this morning, uh, so I'm going to make them to you. I mean, you, you've talked about the challenge and time frame and, and it's saying in this document delivering an executive climate change bill uh, within this mandate is a challenging but key priority for the dear Minister. I mean, I, that doesn't really uh, equate with the reality of the discussions that we and other uh, MLAs have had with the Minister on this subject. I mean, the NDNA agreement, for example, uh, was agreed in January, uh, and you know the Assembly have had numerous debates on climate emergency, which the Minister has resisted uh, until now. So, I mean, I, I think that the challenging time frame has been imposed by the Minister, because there's nothing in this document I mean, this document could have been released three months ago, six months ago, nine months ago, in my view. Uh, and the other point I just want to make is the discussion, it says within it, the discussion document on climate bill does not introduce any new policies. I mean, that's very disappointing, uh, I have to say, given the, the delay in producing the document in the first instance. Uh, there's no, uh, I mean, there's a complete absence of any all-Ireland dimension or, cr or cross-border uh, cooperation mentioned, which I think is uh, astounding. I mean, obviously the Minister can't legislate on an all-Ireland basis, but it would be madness to, for us to be uh, discussing climate change on, on this part of the island without having some discussion on cooperation uh, w with the southern part of the, the island. I mean, the, the environment and climate impact is... Uh, Inextricably connected. So, I mean, th those are two key points uh, that, that I want to make. I mean, you talked about the two options. I mean, I, I think, uh, and this is it's not just my view, it's the view of the Assembly, that the North needs 
uh, its own climate legislation moving towards net zero before uh, 2050. Uh, so, I mean, I, I think that we need to be ambitious here about what we do in terms of legislation and also in terms of showing leadership uh, on this issue. I mean, those are just a number of points I want to make, Chair. Yeah. Do you want any response to those? Uh, yeah. yeah, there's a Go for it. There must be about <laughs> 10 questions in there, so do your best on. Well, I'll try. Um, so, so what I would say is I think it's on record, Minister on record, that uh, it's very much a bit action, and I think uh, some of the areas that he has uh, uh, pushed ahead and championed uh, since the return of the ministers uh, has been recorded, such as Sports for a Future. Uh, support for recycling programs, you know, a couple of, uh, and the plastic reduction action plan. Um, it, this has been, and that's despite the difficulties that uh, all of us uh, are, have faced in the last, uh, you know, eleven months with uh, uh, concurrently having a COVID pandemic to uh, deal with, and also with EU transition, which have been stretching resources. And I mean, it's just not this year. The staff involved in the legislative program have been working flat out for the whole of 2019 uh, as well. So there is to a certain degree a bit of uh, a capacity issue. But I think also what's important was we were sort of in a bit of a, I think it's a bit of a Hobson's choice this year. Um, there was acknowledgement that with the UK uh, moving to next year, 2050, um, that there was going, this safe carbon budget, the uh, county were going to prepare, was going to have a lot more detail and a lot more evidence to how we should go forward right down to the Gulf nation and region level. And therefore, um, if we push ahead uh, possibly too early in this, it might be that we miss this evidence and we, uh, 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 the decisions that were being taken weren't found in the evidence. Obviously, the, the, the problem of delaying is then you run up against the legislative uh, uh, timescale. Uh, that's just Hobson's choice. Um, uh, the minister, what I can say is, has directed us to to push ahead, uh, to prioritise, to resource this climate change bill, uh, and to engage with experts and to engage the, uh, the committee, uh, climate change committee, to make sure that we provide the best information to the public and to other stakeholders. Um, well, the, the term on on the ambitious um, nature uh, of the targets. Uh, I'm not really going to comment on that. Uh, there are two options there. There's probably discussion there. It, it, it's not for me to say what my preference is at this minute. Uh, that's up for people to comment back in the public discussion document. I think what uh, has been helpful is that the information that's been provided by the committee for the committee on climate change uh, should allow uh, more consideration of what will be the challenges for different levels of target. And the Climate Change Committee have been uh, you know, pretty forward in their deep dives over the last two weeks in saying that even for UK to reach net zero, with all its constituent parts, and you know, the, the Committee on Climate Change has said that what they think is a fair and equitable contribution is 82% reduction. That is an assumption that as of today and moving forward, we are going to be front-loading the resourcing and the uh, policies in the 20s so that we can deliver these uh, already ambitious targets by the 30s and then set us in a course for reaching uh, UK net zero by 2050. Um, it, it'll be up to yourselves, politicians, to 
sort of how Gurland ambitious target lies on the on the uh, on the range. Uh, but I think there's uh, it's going to have to be a lot there discussion about how that uh, any target could you no matter what it is is actually resourced and policy has been placed to, to meet it. Oh, uh, sorry, Chair, just come back. I just don't think there, but the, the, the Irish connection, uh, it doesn't explicitly um, uh, look in the document like that, but I think what should be noted is that in the Lord Deacon's uh, advice to the Minister uh, and response to him, in that uh, the Minister is quite clear he wants to look at the nature of targets for different uh, greenhouse gases and actually look at, uh, you know, Gases, uh, emissions in those different sectors across the UK, etc., uh, and the British Isles and in Ireland as well. And so, in that advice, there is also uh, information about, um, you know, aligning potentially with what the Irish are currently considering for their climate change action. Okay, Owen, thank you very much, John. Thank you, Chair, and thank you, Owen, for the, for the presentation. Um, Owen, I'm, I'm happy to have these conversations, and I'm keen enough to see the, the things come forward, but, but I think I have to make the comment that the coordination could have been better. For example, um, earlier in the year when some of us were being told uh, officially that this would not happen, uh, other plans were, were put in place and, and other pressures were brought to bear, but uh, with regard to coordination, should we be looking then at other consultations and discussions that are taking place? Like, for example, later in this meeting we're going to be discussing a document called the 30-year sustainability for the future consultation, which doesn't, as far as I can see, include any mention of a Climate Change Act discussion by the Department. So is it not therefore essential that any other uh, consultations and discussions on the environment must include reference to the, the work being done in relation to Climate Change Act and also, hopefully, um, include a timetable associated with such an act? Um, well, I can't comment on that piece of work, but I can say that um, during the year there has been a lot of activity uh, and intent expressed. So I think that this uh, climate change bill is just, uh, as I referred to earlier on, a number of actions the ministers uh, you know proceeded with, and one I did forget and that's quite substantial is the green growth uh, strategy and framework going forward. Uh, I mean, it is inextricably linked to, uh, uh, to climate change, particularly mitigation, but also adaptation. And in fact, internally within the department now, we are actually realigning business areas uh, to make sure there is that future coordination and cohesion uh, to, to deliver uh, across the department, across the rest of the departments in the Northern Service Service. So, for instance, uh, the climate change mitigation and climate change adaptation teams are moving into the Green Growth Division. So, we have that a better co cohesion, which hopefully then improve that coordination, not just internally in the department, but across other departments. Okay, thank you. Rosemary? Yeah, thank you for your presentation. Um, is there anything in this Northern Ireland Climate Change Act that um, is not in the UK Climate Change Act? Um, there has been, um, we've done as part of this work a review of other um, climate change legislation within uh, UK, Ireland, and actually other developed nations such as New Zealand to, to get a feel for what actually are the, the core um, elements of a climate change act. 
and uh, you know there's a number that stands out, uh, and uh, one of them is the overarching headline tasks. Uh, another point is carbon budgets. Uh, another area is reporting and, and duties responsibilities. And the final thing is uh, advisory bodies. And um, this 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 climate change bill that is being uh, you know developed um, will complement the UK uh, Climate Change Act, uh, but the intent uh, would be from the public discussion document those sort of four key areas for consideration uh, by the public to be you know that would be the core content of a climate change act which would be in line with pretty much the, the, the development issues we've gone down this road yeah so you're working in tandem then with the uk people yeah, it, yeah, yeah, definitely. I mean, um, the, the lead is from the Climate Change Act, and yeah. uh, having our own uh, Northern Ireland Bill allows us then to uh, make spoke measures to deal with issues that are more relevant to us. And I think, uh, as we've heard in the previous discussion uh, with the Minister, um, agriculture is a significant element within Northern Ireland economy, and we can't get away from that. It's 27% of the current greenhouse gas emissions. Uh, we are we are totally out of line with the UK average in that. So therefore, it, it, it would be prudent for us to have that sort of uh, mechanism through a uh, bill to reflect targets and to reflect carbon budgets that we uh, deliver a fair and balanced pathway to future net zero. Uh huh. But of course, we produce more food here than elsewhere per head than the UK. Uh, and I think I think what I've. I think there's a bit of pragmatism that has to be brought to this and uh, climate change committee were quite vocal, I'm not sure if anybody listened to some of the deep dives, were quite vocal in about, you know, Northern Ireland, they recognise Northern Ireland is a significant exporter of agri-food products, with nearly 50% of all agri-food products produced in Northern Ireland, consumed the rest of the UK, and so therefore, you know, and I'll, I'll paraphrase on or quote uh, Lord Dillon from one of the deep dives, um, it was only right then that the rest of the UK carried some of this burden. Um, they recognised, I mean, he actually recognised in that call, the quality of the meat and the waste produced in Northern Ireland is an exemplar. And what uh, he didn't want to do, the climate change didn't want to do was, you know, they, didn't, they want to look after the territorial emissions from the UK and they don't want to push carbon ups overseas. So I think one of the dangers would be that if we push too hard, and this is one of the risks that the Climate Change Committee mentioned about pushing too fast and too hard and or too slow, there's a balance here, that actually you end up um, offshoring carbon. And actually, we, we need to be very careful that this is not maybe a vanity project about a target, to say we've got a target. We have to be very careful what the consequences are because we are contributing to a global movement to reach net zero and the, the Paris Agreement. And I think uh, if we in Northern Ireland are contributing quality food for the rest of the UK market, uh, the carbon intensity, which is recognised as very good, I mean, the, 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 the latest figures in the Carbon Intensity Report outline how uh, well the dairy sector has done, productivity, etc., then I think it would be um, dangerous or risky or foolish or whatever you want to say to offshore that to other nations who don't really have as much regard for animal husbandry quality or even carbon intensity. Thank you. Okay, um, we have got uh, Claire. Thank you, Chair, um, and thank you, Owen and Arlene, for being here for the presentation. Uh, just to update my 
I'm not that old, but the point is in the, the consultation as well, I think that it's, um, it, it's, it's quite directed in its style and, and quite reductive in its opportunity for um, answers. But having said that, um, you know, at least the work has started with something to, to be thankful for. But I'm wondering what information do you think or is it hope that will be doing from this consultation in comparison to the consultation in the previous environment strategy, for example? And there's going to be 2,000 responses. Does the department put your claim to that one? Um. The Minister has stated that you know, he was keen to engage across all sectors and I think that's important and I think it's important that um, there's a certain concern sometimes that um, when we're looking at legislation we look to others and there, there's a danger of mirroring. Uh, in the climate change um, arena we have a totally different, we have, we have our own distinct issues and problems uh, uh, and we have our own sort of profile and therefore I think uh, the Minister in directness was keen that at least there was engagement um, by the broader society and public to reflect those views. Um, but, you know, the, the reality is we are, the, the, yes, there's a challenging uh, timeline. The Minister wants to take a board to put in climate change and, you know, there would have been an option to move directly to policy development and draft instructions on just simply the back of the Climate Change Committee. As I've referred to before, this is a sort of a Hobson's choice. This is not perfect. I've already said in my sort of open remarks, you know, we recognise this is not the process. But I think I think if there's anything to take from this, and, and I accept the criticism about maybe um, the lack of some of the elements within the discussion document, etc. But I think if there's hard to be taken from this, is that it's the seriousness intent to make sure by the end of this mandate that you know, officials are pushing to get a climate change bill to the state that the minister can go to executive colleagues to get agreement and to get it introduced so that actually by the end of this mandate Northern Ireland will have a climate change bill which in reality will, you know, if we take those sort of three or four key elements, provisions, three key provisions, will not be that much different from all the core um, legislation. And, I mean, and I would... I mean, this is about. This is not about how big a bill is or whatever. If you look at the amendment to the UK Climate Change Act last year, uh, when it went to net zero, it was one line. But that one line has already produced over five pages of reports and more data to come in. That one line has stimulated new policies and plans. And I think it's about actually making sure we have the quality and the clarity and the succinctness of the direction for all stakeholders in the public Northern Ireland over the next. Not ten years, not twenty years, thirty years. This bit, when we get the um, the bill introduced and we get royal assent, that is a really and it's, it's a cliche, but that is just the end of the beginning. The actual hard work and intensity that everybody starts the day after that bill is, uh, if not before now, because um, as I've said before, putting climate change said to get net zero or to get near. It, and to fulfil this ambition, we have to front new policies and resources in the 2020s. Now, well, what do you do? Sorry. Well, I promise you, you don't need to hammer home the earth and see the complexity and the great need for any of this. I mean, I couldn't understand it yet. But in terms of the Minister being keen to then engage with the wider sector, what engagement hasn't done so far with other ministers and other departments? Because this is obviously cross cutting um, and needs the, the buy in and the recognition. 
Well, the Minister has, um, has directed us to, to look at the um, uh, safe carbon budget and, uh, you know, it, the, the decision are just big, and as I said, this isn't perfect, and we've turned around and we've pushed this out to make sure that this discussion document was aligned now with uh, the safe carbon budget and the balanced pathway to net zero. But the Minister, this is just not the start of the Minister's engagement. It's been he's engaged with other ministers in the department and the officials engaged with other departments through the Green Group the Green Growth Agenda and before the Green Growth Agenda, the Future Generations Working Group, which is all looking about uh, mitigation and uh, efficiency and reducing carbon. And before that, you know, there's been engagement with adaptation plans, etc. So this is not just the start of engagement by the Minister of Officials. There's been ongoing engagement on the particular bill that is still to come and it has been reflected in the Minister's um, letter to colleagues saying that he will follow up and engage them. So seeing that the competition committee in their report, they identified uh, and, you know, really identified the role of citizens' assemblies in getting to where we are now and getting the right point of filing um, and getting the public to understand the ramifications um, of the measures that need to, to happen as well. Have we had any discussions, because not really mentioned at all, about the you know, establishment of citizens' assembly here? Hmm. Well, I think the, um I acknowledge that, and I think the focus has been about getting that clarity and succinctness of direction in legislation. Um, I mean, I've come from a decade or so on waste policy and maybe recycling. Um, I didn't need legislation to engage or to push for policy forward, reflecting what the views of the public were. Um, we can work. We can work that in in other methods, and actually focusing that as we go along. I think. The urgency, I would say, is to get that clarity of direction for businesses, uh, society, and public, and those okay. targets. The carbon development first carbon budgets are the first uh, first steps in that. And actually, engagement to be able to produce those carbon budgets uh, will have to happen uh, more broadly. Well, I would say that would be a great thing as well. But, you know, again, um, we don't need necessarily, you could argue that we don't need the legislation in order to set targets and resource them for people then and sectors to, to achieve them. But what we do need is the public to understand um, the buy-in here as well and what's going to be required and the changes that's going to come out. So, you know, you can argue exactly the same for both of those that are really. But can I just double check with you? So we have in UK, can, I, can Northern Ireland and can the executive set our own targets um, that you know, because there is the UK targets and we are bound by those, do we have the devolved competency to, in legislation, set our own targets that would be different from the UK ones? Um, well, that, that is the intent, and as part of this bill work, um, we are actually checking to make sure that we have uh, we have got those competencies, there's no sort of pitfalls when we get pounds, uh, you know. We yeah. haven't done this because you know there's been legislation before um, that had the Secretary of State preserving the emissions, etc. So we're actually engaging with DSO to make sure that we've got the proper approach here to, uh, uh, and uh, uh, you know we are allowed to actually make these targets. So that's all part of the current work uh, being conducted uh, to, to develop the policy on the climate change bill. Okay, thank you. Thank you.
Okay, before we go back then, so the, the Committee of Climate Change report sort of explicitly identified, as if we all did know already, anyway, that the agri-rookie sector, the intensification of food production here, um, is our big problem. Um, and I know that there most of the out there uh, and other works going on, but again, putting all that in, it remains our problem. So is there a strategy to reduce that? I know the green growth strategy is there with the minister, but it sounds to me like if we're really on track to legislate for split methane target, is that a discussion that's going on? Um, and what has been the conversation around that? Is that the trajectory? Um, uh, well, again, I, I'm not going to. There, there has been a conversation, and it's in the, the discussion document, and we have been engaging with uh, you know scientists and experts to uh, to understand you know the pros and cons because uh, there's no simple clear answer here. Um, split targets and methane, etc. There's still a requirement, no matter what the targets set, that all sectors and all areas have to reduce, and you know that includes agriculture. And uh, because uh, any any gains that any sector make above what they're expecting to make is an advantage. So this is sort of uh, you know uh, we have to push ahead. And I think we need to be very clear. And I'll just come back after this 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 point to to engagement. Uh, we have to be very clear that uh, we, we shouldn't get lost in target. And as I said, I was involved in recycling back in 2010. Everybody was a bit of target. No one actually understood what the outcome for that target was. And we, we revolved and got the arguments on the target. And we actually, some of the early decisions were bad because it drove to no quality recycling that have to be, that have to be, that has to be offshore. Whereas when we turn it around to a more circular approach and look at the targets on the milestone to an outcome then that's when we actually got, we got the big gains in recycling. And I think we need to be very careful in climate change. Uh, we have to understand what uh, is the context of the outcome. And uh, therefore, that those targets have to be set, not just to be targets and numbers in their own right, but actually what is the outcome they're seeking to support and, and direct. Uh, um, I would also say in the agriculture side, a lot of maybe attention will be put on and the committee uh, climate changes uh, extra advice to to Mr. Boots about the difference in the targets, etc. Um, but I think we should also be wary that um, we should also be cognizant that for us to get even to eighty two percent reduction, even though the agricultural sector by GDP is taken into account, there's going to have to be a lot more carbon sequestration. Our land use is going to have to turn from being an emitter into a sink. And that's going to have an impact on land use and agriculture as well. And that's you know where a lot of the discussions going to have to be, I think, going forward to make sure that, as I said earlier, that when we bring mitigation measures, they also actually assist with an adaptation, which in turn will assist with water quality, which in turn will assist with biodiversity. And I think as we discuss and build these strategies together over the next two or three years, we will soon find out that these actually are synergistic and actually mutually supported, as opposed to being what many in the last, you know, more traditionally has seen confrontational. Because I think actually this is a chance to under this build of these targets for people to be pulled together and actually uh, work, uh, collaborate to, to get that outcome. Um, and just and again, it's going to be important. You, you made that point. I was just going to say we have actually initiated, uh, and the minister has written to the minister of colleagues of the committee. But I had the letter as well about a Northern Ireland Climate Action Programme, which is basically, in the first instance, uh, COP26, and actually 
COP15 biodiversity as well over the next year, but it's just not a nine or ten month campaign. The plan is for this to be, you know, initially three years. COP26 is just a milestone to, to use as a catalyst to gain the interest. Um, we already have got plans to work with um, Keep on our beautiful youth sector for Eagle Schools that's coming together. Uh, we're going to support some of the key UK themes on working with youth and working through sports. Uh, I've already had meetings with Sir Nigel Topping, the, um, the, the UN champion for COP26 on the Race to Zero campaign and also the UK uh, together uh, for Future Planet. So there's a lot of work now has started to be generated to actually get that engagement moving up the agenda. And I think over 21, you'll see a lot more visibility and publicity as we build this COP26. But it's also just to reassure the committee it won't fall off a cliff come the end of November. The intent is this falls right through, and actually that will provide opportunity for more and more people to engage, provide feedback, and actually start get better understanding. So part of the, the, the work that we're aiming to do in schools is about carbon literacy. So, uh, so there's a lot of positives. Um, yeah, but I think there's still a lot of concerns there as well. I mean, again, this intensification of the livestock sector in Northern Ireland, you know, is directly linked to Ireland as well. And when we're finding that we're focused a lot on the carbon um, and sequestration or reduction, um, we know that um, you know, methane is a sort of greenhouse gas, but still, you know, over 80 times more potent than CO2 over 20 years. So there's a huge body of work that we need to do to immediately reduce methane. And that's my concern really that if we're heading for split median targets, um, what we're going to do there really. But maybe my, my last point to make that I want to take everybody's time is can I just get confirmation from you then? Is it the intent to have this bill passed during this mandate with royal assent? Or is it the intent to have it written and um, introduced maybe for the end of this mandate? The intent is to aspire or get to royal assent and to have it introduced by April. By uh, April 2021. 20, 20, 20, 20, 20. 20. Yes, this is why, you know, my apologies up front about the expediency of making some of the decisions, you know, and getting this discussion document but I, uh, you know, the next three months are absolutely critical, and that's why we have front-loaded resources and stripped away some of our experienced people who are involved in legislation to make sure this is our we will deliver uh, a bill for minister to engage colleagues. Apologies, my computer was ringing up there, so just just last week, one percent on this bill by um, Well, I can't say that there uh, because uh, I don't get official. I will, I will push the resources and push. Uh, well, the, the person who comes at me because I'm briefing shortly to the fisheries commission. But the, the, the people in charge, I can tell you, are, are good people. Um, they will, they are working hard at the minute, and we will get this introduction. So I have to say, after introduction. The ball nearly passes to the politicians and the committee and the assembly, etc. And I think it's if if there is a political will to get this through, if we get this to introduction in April, then I should see no reason why um, we'll have a assent or have a, a bill by in twenty two. Okay, thank you. That's a good politicians answer on to us. <laughs> <laughs> 
Uh, okay, thank you. Uh, Patse, your, your hands up for a question there. Thanks very much, Gary. Good morning, everybody. Um, Salute, and I just wanted to throw in a few questions. I've seen your computation questions there. Um, one or two of them seem to me a wee bit on my map of how you take things. Um, the other, the other, the other paper that we did at 10 or 15 years ago, we already did. So, um, I wonder if it's just, uh, that, uh, well, forgive me, it's also the best stuff to be. And parties on this, uh, that didn't arose chair of the uh, environment committee. Now, is it, are we likely to see legislation changing? And, and if you give me the, the time frame, or um, some could be forgiven for saying that, that this consultation exercise could be given the tin down the alley a wee bit further. Um, so, if not in a rush, I'll yeah, many of us are passionate about this and genuinely want to see this good go. And as legislators want to see it done, the time feel that the frame is compatible with the issue. We all have this, the problems with the flash flood. We see what's happening around us, and uh, many of the measures that are happening in the area that we are safely about really shouldn't be happening. And it's, it's because of the, the uh, excesses of man that, that that's going wrong. So um, we really want to push this. And we want to make sure that what we're doing is a genuine effort to arrive at a point where measures are taken to, to at least mitigate those issues that are happening around us day and daily. Yeah, I mean, um, as I've sort of uh, reiterated already, um, we're putting the resource to make sure that we can get a bill introduced in the spring of 21, and that'll be then uh, provide the legislative time frame to uh, progress before then this mandate. And I accept that in fact the question I thought you were going to ask to be honest about the public discussion document uh, rather than yes. just kicking the, the ball down <laughs> the, or the can down the alley. Um, it is an actually just a, a tick box exercise uh, because of the the, the, the time frame that the, the, the uh, you know to, to turn around policy development and draft instructions. Um, uh, that's why we put extra resources and we're seeking, uh, you know, we're engaged with our statisticians who are looking to talk of NISRA and uh, potentially external support to make sure that we can actually deal with responses when they come in to actually allow them to inform policy development. I would say that, and I'll be honest, that some of that policy development has to, to, has to be developed concurrently, but I don't think, uh, you know, and that's more of a legislative process, you know, I, 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 don't, I don't think and the argument will be that there won't be a target so we can actually do work whether discussion documents going on it's what that target is at the end will be you know what the responses and the committee climate change uh, will inform so um so if you're asking me you know this is just going to be um uh, sort of buying for time so we can push this to the next mandate I can absolutely reassure you within, within my division, within my group, and talking to the Burma Secretary, I'm talking to the Minister, uh, I've been tasked to resources to get this to introduction in the springtime. Okay, can you quantify what the resources are? What What is that extra resource? Because, uh, so normally, normally for a bill team would have a seven uh, DP and staff officers, that would be a normal, you know, typically jogging pace. Uh, um, for this one here, we have actually two of those teams. Um, we have a great six over those teams. 
Um, we are insecure, dedicated to DSO support. We already have DSO support within the division of the group, but this is actually to make sure that we've got that support for the next three months during that uh, in policy development center. Uh, and, uh, and that actually, you know, I say every day, the intensity of those, and that team has only come together. Arlene um, was the first member. She carried the, she carried the burden uh, as we started the team uh, back in the end of July. Uh, so uh, that team's come together and they're working hard and they've already uh, provided information um, to the Minister and also uh, I think believing the minister next week kind of met this back several times. So, so there's this has been um, progressed with pace and urgency. Okay, thank you. Uh, yeah, Patsy, uh, back in. Uh, just briefly, Owen, I mean, just following on from Patsy, I mean, I, I completely agree with his point in that, you know, some of us are very passionate about this, so we want to see uh, ambitious uh, legislation that helps uh, the, the North reduce its, its carbon footprint. So, I mean, that, that's the basis that we're all coming at this from. Uh, just in terms of, because you were talking about extra resources, but th did I pick you up? Right, and saying that you're actually leaving the team, so I mean, you've been driving this to this point, but you're leaving it, so that kind of contradicts some of the things you were saying. And then, secondly, if this is coming, you know, if you're talking about uh, putting this legislation in April, that's only three months away. You know, w what does that mean for this committee in terms of scrutiny from either prior to April or from April forwards? Um, April's our target date. Uh, that's what we've worked with the OLC. There might be a bit of waiver. Uh, um, Arlene has uh, got the um, timetable tattooed onto uh, my hand and uh, has got other posters in the office so that we are we will make sure that uh, those elements are met in the, the timetable. Uh, it, it's going to be tight and, and this is why uh, we've got the extra resources so we can do concurrency of activity and actually allow that uh, engagement. So having the grade six there uh, doesn't really mean that I have to be there, to be honest. I, I have, yes, been involved, but the, the hard yards are going to be done by that team and uh, the, people in, the people who are in that team are proven they did it before uh, and uh, they, they, will, they will, if they can't make it happen, there's not many people can. So they, they are cognizant of what has to be done at the timetable, who they have to engage with, and uh, they will uh, make sure that this committee is involved, uh, informed. Okay. okay. Have enough, Philip? Yeah. Okay then. Okay, well, um, I'd like to take this. There's no other members of the indicate they want to speak, so um, I'd like to uh, thank um, Owen and Arlene for uh, joining us here this morning for that uh, very comprehensive briefing and answering all of those questions. And no doubt we'll be seeing and hearing from Tia's in the same head. So, hope you have a very uh, safe and peaceful Christmas and Happy New Year, Tia's. Yes, uh, thanks very much, Chair, and Merry Christmas to everybody. And uh, probably next time you see me, I'll be in marine fisheries. <laughs> <laughs> I'll <different> <laughs> Okay, all the best, Tia's. Take care now. Bye. 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 Okay, folks, we move on to agenda item 8, which is a written evidence uh, from DERA on the um, SL1 Animal Health's Animal Health's Health Identification Trade and Veterinary Medicine Amendment EU Eggs Regulations NA 2020. The memo from the clerk is 117 to 120, and the department papers are 121 to 135. It's sub this SR subject to negative resolution and will come into operation either immediately before or when the transition period ends. It amends secondary legislation relating to animal and aquatic health, trade, and veterinary medicines and to support the protocol.
and a number of technical amendments to this jurisdiction's legislation to reflect that the UK is no longer a member of the EU. The provisions also reflect that Britain will be treated as a third country in, in EU terms on the protocol in the absence of a treaty. Uh, a main provision of this SR is the amendment of this jurisdiction's legislation relating to uh, trade in animals and animal products to reflect that those moving these products into this jurisdiction from Britain are to be regarded as third uh, party importers. There are two uh, dear officials on standby. Uh, do, do members want to bring them in for any questions? Yes, okay. Um, who have we got on standby? Oh, sorry. Uh, Francis uh, Kearney, Veterinary Officer, Neil Gartland, and Darren uh, Fullerton. Uh, can, you, um, can you hear us there? Um, Rosemary Barton wants to ask you a question. Hello. It's in relation to pedigree cattle. Um, pedigree breeders uh, bringing cattle over. They can bring them over from Northern Ireland to a sale, we'll say, in Perth. If they don't sell that animal, what's the position for them getting that animal back into Northern Ireland again? Get, can they just immediately take it back without any problem? Uh, Neil, uh, we can't hear. We can't hear you. We can't hear you. Francis or Darren or Neil, we can't. Look like they can hear us either. Uh, I can hear you. Oh yeah, we can hear you now. Yes. Thank you so much, Chair. I think it was my connection there. Really, thanks, thanks very much for the question. Um, there are a number of requirements um, that will come into effect from the 1st of January in relation to those cattle coming back to Northern Ireland. Um, one of them is a... Oh, lost you. Sorry, Darren, maybe if you could come in. And if, can you hear me? Sure. It's, it's, it's intermittent, uh, Neil. Yes, uh, in terms of um, bringing it um, back into to Northern Ireland, there, there are a number of um, requirements, um, basically in terms of um, being uh, presented at a point of entry um, at the ports, and um, the export health certificate requirements um, to return the animal to Northern Ireland. So it's not it's not straight straightforward. Also, will that not affect breeders coming up? Also, for the buying in of livestock from farmers buying in of livestock from GB into Northern Ireland. Rosemary, it's uh, in relation to the ACs and the checks that have to be made. It's the dependent on the technology we bring in, there are a number of requirements uh, that you have to adhere to. Um, but, you know, these are set out to the Department of Wildlife and Mediation and Industry on that prepare them in time, uh, the requirements that they'll have to adhere to from the 1st of January. Right. And just um, one other thing in relation to veterinary medicines. You know, these veterinary medicines, what uh, can you explain then the animal medicines cannot be licensed for UK in totality then? They have to be licensed separately for, UK, for the UK and then wait for approval for Northern Ireland? Uh, I'll bring in Francis, and this is my understanding, Rosemary, is that uh, the EU and uh, the UK 
both uh, post-transition authorized medicines. Francis, maybe you want to pick it up there? Yeah, yeah. Um, yes, medicine uh, for Northern Ireland can be authorised either centrally or, um, or by the EU process or um, by the Veterinary Medicines Directorate uh, for ourselves in Northern Ireland. There, as long as the regulatory frameworks continue to align, they will be able to be authorised on a UK-wide basis. There will be some instances, um, for example, divergence or market authorisation holders may decide for commercial reasons to split out authorisations. But you know, potentially, yes, you will end up in a situation where you will have an NI only authorised medicine available for supply and sale in Northern Ireland, or you could have a GB only, which would be for sale and supply in a yeah. We've been working very closely with the Veterinary Medicines Directorate, you know, engaging with them, assessing the impact of the protocol, and we've identified risks and, you know, have mitigated and working towards mitigating uh, the risks. Okay, thank you. Uh, William? Yeah, in relation to Rosemary's question, then around paddy, there are pedigree breeders that goes to shows and sales in Scotland. Um, if do you know what you know there's going to be issues getting them back to northern ireland but if that's going to be i'm told it's going to take some time to get those after quarantine and all the rest i'm not so sure but if that if that is the case it will kill that industry no one will bring a pedigree bull or a pedigree animal to scotland to have it sitting cost them a fortune if they don't sell it can't get it back home is there do we know exactly what the procedures are to get those animals back at this stage? Is, is there a clear clear pathway back, or is it, is it clear what has to happen? Uh, well, in terms uh, um, of um, the, the guidance, uh, it's my understanding that there's guidance currently uh, available on the, the DARE website in terms of um, bringing animals um, into Northern Ireland um, through uh, Point of Entry. Uh, and as well as that, um, <laughs> engagement with industry in terms of um, like the export health certificates requirements for uh, bringing in those imports. Okay. Okay. Uh, yeah, that's okay. I'll go to the website. <laughs> Can learn more of it, I think. There, you indicate you want the speaker? Okay, maybe not. Um, so, um, are we content that this the meritorious policy moves to the next stage? I'd be I'm not content. Uh, register your objection. Okay, so members okay will note Rosemary's objection? Okay, thank you. Thank you very much for coming on this morning. Um, okay, thank you. Yeah. Uh, item number nine then is a written briefing, SL1, the Producer Responsibility Obligations Regulations 2020. The memos of 137 to 139 and correspondence in the Department of 140 to 178. This SR will be subject to a negative resolution procedure as anticipated to come into operation on the 1st of January uh, as in breach of the 21-day rule. 
purpose of the SR is to amend the producer responsibility obligations uh, packaging waste regulation 2007 to update packaging waste targets for 2021-22 and to implement the packaging and packaging waste directive in this jurisdiction. The proposed regulations will mirror those in the, in the UK and are <coughs> designed to encourage business to take responsibility for packaging waste produced by commercial activity. The regulations will also encourage producers to reduce <coughs> packaging through innovative design and by setting challenging targets for the recycling of waste. Members will note that the wood target has decreased for 2021 and 22. This is due to the target set for 2017 to 2020 on the expectation of a high, high target in the circular economy package and packaging waste directive, which did not occur. When the SL1 was first considered by the committee on the 3rd of December, there were a number of issues raised which were referred to the department for response. Members will find the response of 140 of the pack. Um, there, there are members available by Starleaf if anybody wants to ask any questions. Can I have yeah, Clarification yeah, on one issue. Yeah, we've got Leslie Roberts of the Brexit Waste Strategy and Janice Harris of the Environmental Policy Division. Uh, can you, uh, are on there, Rosemary, you want to ask some questions on them? Um, does the Northern Ireland law after January, after the 1st of January, will it continue to follow the UK law? Um, it continues to follow the EU law. This um, directive that this legislation actually relates to is listed in the protocol. Um, so at the moment, it is a UK-wide system and there's no intention to leave that. Okay, thank you. Okay. Um, okay, so are members uh, okay with the merits of policy and should move to the next legislative stage? Okay, uh, next item is a written briefing on SR, the Waste Amendment EU Eggs Regulations 2020. The memo from the clerk is 180-181 and paper from the department of 182-200. The SL1 was considered by the committee on the 19th of November, at which stage members indicate that we were content with the merits of the policy. The rule is subject to a negative resolution procedure. The statute rule makes minor and technical amendments to the Marine Licensing uh, Order 2011 and to two existing EU Exit SAs. Um, uh, regulations 2019 and the waste um, amendments Northern EU Exit Regulation 2019 to ensure that the legislation amended by these instruments will continue to operate effectively at the end of the transition period. It also includes a small number of minor technical amendments to the waste regulation 2019 that are needed in consequence of the protocol. The examiner's statute rules is now reported in the rule and our report has been tabled. The ESR report has notes no uh, concerns. Um, so, um, um, is there, are, are members um, content with this rule? Can I clarification? Oh, sorry, yeah. clarification? Yes, yeah. please. We uh -huh. don't have Thank any you. members. We don't have any um, um, dear officials on Starleaf on this matter, but if we can, if you want to note it and send it on to the department, would that be fair enough, Rosemary? Yeah, it's... Sorry? Yeah. 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 I want to, you know, I want to clarify... Um, Clarify if other areas of the UK will be retaining these EU, these EU directives as well. Perfect. Okay. Okay. So I'll, I'll just uh, so so the committee okay that the, the, the committee for agriculture and rural affairs considered SR twenty twenty two eight four the waste amendment EU exit regulation in twenty twenty and has no objection to the rule. Yes. The committee is okay with that. Okay. Um, 
Thank you. We've written briefing SR 2022-85, the waste, circular economy, uh, amendment regulations NI 2020. The memo is at page 202-203 and the correspondence from the Department of 204-242. I want to advise members that the, um, the committee first considered um, uh, the, the SL1 at the meeting on the 19th of November and were content with the merits of the policy and it should be progressed to the next legislative stage. Uh, the purpose of the SR is to amend domestic waste, legis domestic waste legislation in order to reflect the main changes made to the key waste directives by the Circular Economy Waste Package CEP, which entered into force in 2018 and amended six existing directives. The majority of the amendments are, up, are to update definitions and references to EU legislation. The ESR has now reported the rule and her report has been tabled. The ESR notes no concerns with the ESR. Is there any, um, uh, any comments from members? Okay, same clarification again. Clarification. Okay, um, I'll put the question then that the Committee for Agriculture and Rural Affairs considered SR 2022 at 5, the Waste Circular Economy Amendment Regulations NA 2020. There's no objections. Okay. Not noted, Rosemary? Yeah, please. <coughs> uh, can I just, try. Can, if you can hear me, I think there's problems going on with Starling. <laughs> Anyone around here can see him here. You guys, you couldn't with me. I don't think looking at the screens there, maybe passing Morris is disabled. Oh, God, sorry about that, Claire. Not okay, but I'm just raising it. Yeah, maybe that's something we need to raise with the, the communications people. Thanks for drawing all your attention to that, Claire. So, um, the, we've written briefing uh, SR 2022 item 12 in your agendas, the Plant Health Official Controls and Miscellaneous Provisions Regulations NA 2020, the memo from the clerk is 244 to 245, corresponds to the Department 246 to 312. The committee first considered the SL1 at the meeting on the 15th of October and were content with the merits of the policy and that it should progress to the next stage. Members may recall that the purpose of the SR is to revoke and replace the Plant Health Official Controls and Miscellaneous Provisions Regulations NA 2019, which the committee approved on the 3rd of March 2020, as DSO was since advised that contains unnecessary legal references which now need to be revoked and replaced with further EU implementing decisions subsequent to 14th December 2019. It ensures that the necessary and appropriate enforcement powers are in place here in connection with the requirements of the Plant Health Regulations, Plant Health Aspects of the OCR and Associated ter Tertiary Legislation. Examining such rules has not yet reported on the rule, therefore members will be agreeing to rules subject to ESR reports. Members, any questions? Yeah. Yeah, go for it. Again, again, yeah. I just want to know, you know, what impact this will have on the sale of sale and transporting of plants from GB again into Northern Ireland. Noted uh, for the department. Um, so um, I'll go put the question. The Committee of Agriculture and Rural Affairs considered SR 202293, the Plant Health Official Controls and Miscellaneous Provisions Regulations, NA 2020, and subject to examiner statute rules report. No objections. If there were barriers, if I, if I knew what the answer was, I, if there were barriers, I'd be voting against it. If there's not, I agree. But I'm okay, yeah, I'll flag that up. Yeah. yeah. Can you flag that up? Okay. Any answers beyond which one of those were <laughs> So, some of us predicted it four years ago. 
So, written brief in item 13, your agendas, uh, SR 2020-2294, the marketing of fruit, plant and propagating material regulations 2020, memo from the darks, page 314-315, corresponds to department 316-321. My vice member of the committee first considered the SL1 at the meeting of the 15th of October. We're content with the merits of the policy and that it should move to the next legislative stage. My vice members, the purpose of the SR is to amend the marketing of fruit, plant and propagating material regulations 2017 to implement Commission Implementing Directive EU 2019-1813, which amends Directive 2014-96 EU with regards to the colour and content of a supplier's document. Examining such rules has now reported on the rule drawn to the has drawn to the special attention of the Assembly in relation to an error in drafting. Regulation, <coughs> Regulation 2 of SR 2022-94 amends the marketing of fruit, uh, plant and propagating material regulations 2017. It inserts a new regulation 27A. New regulation 27A2 provides the regulation ceases to have effect on the 1st of July 2021. The Department has acknowledged that this is a drafting error. The Department advises that the inserted regulation 27A2 should read the regulation ceases to have effect on the 30th of June 2021. The Department advises it will correct this error in the next statute bill to be laid by the Department. The Department expects to be laid by the end of this week. Any members, any questions from members on this? Philip? Chair, just a point, because uh, I, I meant to raise it in the last one. But it's saying in, in our briefing here and uh, all of these, when the SL came to the committee and that the committee had uh, no concerns or were content with the merits of the policy and it should move on. I mean, I'm just wondering, because I thought in a lot of these SLs we were actually just noting them rather than stating we were content. I don't know if it was what we specifically said with regard to that, but I mean, I note that we as a committee had a kind of a policy when a lot of these SLs, we, we didn't actually say we were content, we, we, we noted I'll just clarify there, that was in relation to the statutory instruments that you were noting. Fair so enough. the SL1s came and you would have had officials on standby and you'd have been able to ask questions at that point. Fair enough. No, that's, that's, I just wanted to clear that up. Yeah. Thanks for the clarification, Barbara. Yeah, I have the same concerns as in the previous one. Okay, thank you. Um, can I put the question? Committee of Environment, Rural Affairs are concerned. SR 2020 Marketing of Fruit, Plant and Propagate Material Amendment Regulations NA 2020. And no objection to the rule. Again, depending on the answer. Yeah. Okay. So, written briefing. Um, Dara, the right hit number 14 your agendas. Um, seed Marketing Amendment Regulations NA 2020. I want to refer members to the memo from the clerk at page 323 to 325 and corresponds to the Department of 326 to 334. The committee first considered this SL1 as a meeting on the 22nd of October and were content with the merits of policy and agreed they should move to the next legislative stage. The SR is subject to a negative resolution procedure and is intended to come into operation on the 23rd of December. Subject to the committee's agreement, mem um, members are advised that this is in breach of the 21-day rule. <coughs> The examiner of rules contacted the department after having scrutinised the SR as she had noted that the coming into operation date in, in Regulation 1 had not been completely completed properly. Under normal circumstances and without current time constraints, the solution would have been to revoke and remake the original regulations. However, it was agreed that an amendment rather than a correction slip would suffice and that if the committee was able to progress the amending regulations as a matter of urgency, the examiner would report to the committee both sets of regulations at the same time, i.e. she would point out that there was an error but that 
but that, that, that error had been already been corrected. That would enable the examiner to report on a fully functional room book. Given the regulations have no policy implications, the urgency of the situation, in fact, the committee had already considered the original regulations in full. It was assessed by the policy area that the amending regulations could proceed without an SL1, particularly the examiner's intention is to report to the committee on the original and amending regulations at the same time. However, the examiner's statute of rules has not yet reported on the rule. Therefore, members will be agreeing to the rule subject to the ESR report. Members, any questions in relation to this rule? Okay. So we'll go up with the question. Committee for Agriculture and Environment Rural Affairs. Concerned SR 2023 the Seed Marketing Amendment Regulations NA 2020. A subject to examining the statutory rules report has no objection to the rule. Okay. Item 15 is the uh, written briefing from DERA. SR 202322, the Seed Marketing Regulations NA 2020. I want to refer to the correspondence of the Department of pages 336 to 339 and the memo from the clerk at the previous agenda item also refers. I also advise members that this SR corrects an error in the previous regulations and does not implement any policy. The examiner's statute rules is not yet reported on the rule, therefore members will be agreeing to the rule subject to the ESR report. Uh, members, any comments? Okay. We'll put the question. The Committee for Agriculture and Environment Rural Affairs considered SR 2023-22, the Seed Marketing Amendment Number 2 Regulations NA 2020. Subject to examiner's statutory rules report, there's no objection to the rule. Okay. Item uh, 16 on your agenda item is the, um, uh, the, the, the Seeds Variety List Regulations NA 2020. Uh, the memo from the clerk is page 341 to 343 and the corresponds to 344 to 380. The committee first considered this at the, our meeting on the 26th of November. I noted that this error will... This S or will transpose Council Directive 2002-25 EC on common catalogue of varieties of agriculture, plant species and Council Directive 2002-55 EC on the marketing of vegetable um, as it relates to the listing of vegetable varieties. The committee agreed with the merits of the policy and it should move to the next legislative stage. The main purpose of the SR is to create an NA variety list for agriculture, plant varieties and vegetable varieties. The examiner's statute rules is not yet reported on the rule, therefore members will be agreeing to the rule subject to the SR report. Members, any comments in relation to this uh, SR? No. Are members okay? I'm going to put the question. The Committee for Agriculture, Environment, Rural Affairs has considered SR 2023-02, the seeds, ready list regulations NA 2020, and subject to examiner's statute rules report has no objection to the rule. Can I go mm -hmm. You want to note your... Yeah. Okay. Okay, the uh, item 17, um, the um, written briefing from DERA, 2023-03, the EU Fertilising Products Regulations NA 2020, uh, the memos at 382-384 and the correspondence at 385-393. I want to advise members the committee first considered the SL1 at the meeting on the 18th of November and noted that the SR will replicate the organic produce regulations 2009 in order to provide the appropriate powers for the administration and enforcement of EU legislation uh, here as per the requirements of the protocol. The committee agree that with, uh, with the merge of the policy and that it should move to the next stage. The examiner's statute rules has not yet reported on the rule. Therefore, members will be agreeing to the subject to the ESR report. Any comments from members? Yeah. Is anybody to ask questions? Or can you Go ahead. There's nobody on. There's nobody on. There's nobody uh -huh, on. Yeah. And knows me to ask questions. Okay. 
No, they talk about at the end of the implementation period when GB will operate, will operate EU retained law ensure parity between GB Northern Ireland, as in so far as possible. Does that result? Will, will this result with some fertilisers that are available in GB and not available in Northern Ireland? Put that question to the department. And I, I would have well, one hand. And the, the second question: Would it put an impediment? on importing fertilisers from GB into Northern Ireland? Ask those questions to the department. That's a fair enough question, yeah. yeah. Okay, um, so um, obviously I'm going to put the question, but obviously the your, response, your, your determination will be subject to that coming back. Yeah. So. So I'm going to ask a question. The Committee for Agriculture and Environment Rural Affairs considered the SR 2020-303, the EU Fertilising Products Regulations NA 2020, subject to the examiner's statute of report is no objection to the rule. Okay. Okay. Uh, 18. Written briefing from DERA, statute of BEAS TP 047, the Greenhouse Gas Emissions Trading Scheme Order 2020. Uh, Amendment Regulation 2020. I want to refer to members to the correspondence in the Department of Pages 395 to 398. Can I advise members that the draft order was proposed to be made by Privy Council yesterday, 16th December, and laid in the Assembly today, 17th December. The order is subject to negative resolution and amends the principal order, the Greenhouse Gas Emissions Trading Scheme Order 2020, uh, which was made on the 11th of November and, like this order, is scheduled to come into force when the UK leaves the EU, ETS. Department's outline points to note in the explanatory memorandum and the purpose of the order and has stated it will furnish the committee with a copy of the SA and explanatory memorandum when they become available. The order makes provision for the free allocation of allowances and a registry for the EU in the UK ETS. Uh, are officials in standby? Should members have uh, want to ask any questions? Yeah, I have a yes. there. Okay, we have got John Mills, Head of Environmental Policy, Richard Coy, Head of Environmental EU ETS, and absolutely. Uh, can you hear us there, John and Richard? Yeah, Claire, go ahead. Go ahead, sir. Yeah, go ahead, sir. Hey, John. Hi. I just wanted to ask you, how closely does this align with the EU system towards? Um, it's, uh, it's, it's, it's pretty close to, um, uh, the UK ETS is pretty close to the EU system, uh, deliberately so, so they can be linked up in future. Probably the, the, the headline uh, difference is that the, um, uh, the cap is, is set. Uh, 5% below the EU cap on the allowances. And that's Initially, because the, um, the the 
uh, the uh, free allowances um, are going to be, uh, which which make a big difference to, to the cost that industry pay, uh, are going to be uh, the same as under the EU ETS, which southern uh, industry would be in, of course. Um, and uh, so, at least in the early years, um, there shouldn't be uh, much uh, uh, divergence uh, from from the because. Northern Ireland industry has the UK ETS and the southern uh, companies have the EU ETS. Now, the, uh, the, the level of the cap or the level of, of ambition is going to be um, reviewed in light of the uh, Committee on Climate Change's recent uh, report on the sixth carbon budget, which is its first go and added out the route to comply with net zero. So there's obviously scope for divergence there. However, the EU is also working towards um, looking at the EU ETS uh, and making it its level of ambition um, compliant with uh, uh, net zero by 2050. So there are risks of divergence, but um, there are also um, opportunities to, to keep them consistent. Okay, thank you. Okay, Claire. Um, okay, so are members content to note the, the correspondence uh, for the meantime in advance of receiving a copy of the essay and explanatory memorandum when they become available? Yeah. Okay, okay thank you very much, um, uh, uh, Richard and John, for uh, making yourselves available there. Uh, number 819 on your agenda pack is the statute instrument DEFRA the World Trade Organization Agreement on Agriculture, Domestic Support Regulation 2020. I want to refer members to the memo from the clerk, uh, page 400 to 404, corresponds in the pattern 405 to 418, and the concordat is 419 to 464. Uh, this instrument has been allocated at Calgary 2, as it is not expected to place any constraints in practice on the development of future agricultural uh, support policy in this jurisdiction. It, the essay was laid in Westminster on the 12th of November <coughs> under the draft affirmative procedure. DERA states that due to the Agriculture Act 2020 only becoming law on the 11th of November and the late receipt of the final draft of this essay has only been possible to bring forward this information now to the committee. The instrument is not being made under the European Union Withdrawal Act. It relates to the withdrawal of the UK from the EU because following the UK's withdrawal from the EU uh, the UK will now represent its own interests at the World Trade Organization, and the UK government will be responsible for ensuring that the UK complies with its obligations and commitments as an independent member of the WTO. Um, are members uh, content? Um, the the, the member can be note this essay. Uh, agreed words as previously agreed by committee. Yep. Yep. Okay. Okay. Item the common framework for plant varieties and seeds. Uh, uh, the briefing is at page 466-481. On the 8th of December, the Minister noted and agreed the direction of the common framework for <coughs> plant varieties and seeds proceeding to the conclusion of phase three, review of cons and consultation stage of framework development. A concordat for plant varieties and seeds which will underpin the framework is also being drafted. It's likely the concordat will not be finalised before the end of the transition period due to resource pressures. Officials of the department would be happy to brief the committee on the framework if the committee thinks it would be helpful at this stage. Otherwise, officials will keep the committee advised of progression into phase four uh, and a further briefing will be provided in due course. Okay. Uh, 
Happy enough? Can I, I just Any comments? The, yes, Rosemary? Yeah, just the, the one question. Um, what will it, what it impact will this have on importing of the relevant goods from GB to NI? Yep. Are we can note mm -hmm. that there to, or to request that information of the department? Mm -hmm. Have it at their next or Yeah, whenever. Okay. Um, written briefing then from uh, DERA on the common framework for fertilisers. Uh, the briefing from the departments 483 to 486. Um, on the 8th of December, the Minister noted and agreed the direction of the common framework for fertilisers, proceeding to the con conclusion of phase three review and consultation stage of the framework development. Dear states that the common framework for fertilisers currently under development will support the effective and coherent regulation of fertilisers across the UK after EU exit and completion of the implementation period. As with frameworks and other policy areas, arrangements will respect devolution settlements, establish constitutional conventions and practices, and will recognise the role of ministers to ultimately make the key policy decisions. The Air Committee will be given the opportunity to formally scrutinise the provisional framework during Phase 4 of the process in early 2021, prior to completion of a formal version of the framework at the end of that phase. Officials of the Department will be happy to brief the Committee on the framework if the Committee thinks it would be helpful at this stage. Otherwise, officials will keep the Committee advised of progression into Phase 4 and a further briefing will be provided in due course. Um, members okay with that? Yep. I just want to ask the same question, sort of, will, will there be any impediment to importing fertiliser from GB into Northern yeah. Ireland? We will, but we will. We'll have, we'll have the opportunity to do that later. Yes, well, yeah. it's just... Yeah, yeah and maybe in, in advance of the briefing, yeah. they can be forward that question. That's one of the questions <coughs> they could prepare in their um, presentation. <coughs> Thank you. <coughs> Okay, uh, in 22, a written briefing uh, on the 30-year stra strategy sustainability for the future, Dear's plan to 2050. The correspondence is pages 48 49. 30-year plan is 490 to 505. And a written briefing from the Department of 56 to 510. The strategic plan provides an overarching framework for all future strategies and policies to development over the next 30 years. The Department advises that the strategy will be kept under review. <coughs> they currently envisage will be every five years. This will be supported by five-year plans, which will contain more detail on priorities and specific targets to help us achieve the key priorities as set out in the 30-year strategy. The first of these is currently being worked on, and we will aim to have it in place for the start of the 2021 financial year, 2021-22 financial year. The strategy will provide a broad, holistic framework which consistently captures the Department's main priorities against which other strategies will be developed and measured against. The Department's key priorities are underpinned by the 10 strategic goals, sustainable farming and uh, agri-food, thriving, res thriving, resilient rural communities and economies and communities, healthy seas and oceans, pure air, clean rivers and resilient uh, water supply, climate change, safeguarding our natural wealth, resource efficiency and waste reduction, protecting the health of our animals and plants, uh, health and well-being for all, uh, and exemplar organisation. The plan highlights a number of risks which may impact on its ability to deliver, and they are climate change, new legislation, demographic change, demographic change, fourth industrial revolution, funding, EU exit, and world health. The Department is keen to engage the committee and consider our views and feedbacks <coughs> prior to publication. Um, if you have any comments you want to make, you can make them. Yes, John? Yeah, very briefly, Chair. I made it earlier. Um, I'm happy enough to have conversations around these documents. It's not presented as a consultation response by, by a date or in detail, but it's for general views. Yeah. And my general view, I can't speak for others, would be that 
as indicated previously, we're going to do this. This needs to include other strategic plans, like, for example, work currently being formulated with regard to a climate change act mm-hmm. within the department, because there are major environmental implications and policy implications from that. So, just to say to the department, I guess that we would um, expect to see, uh, if members agree, some coordination between these strategies as they come forward. John, sorry, Chair. Just before you move off it, I mean, I agree with John, and it's saying here that we are very keen to engage with the committee and consider our views prior to publication. Is this is this their engagement with the committee? You know, given yes. us the document. Could request a, an oral briefing. I mean, I would have thought if, they, if they're saying they're very keen to engage with the committee, the least they could do is engage with the committee. Yeah, I mean, saying the document isn't uh, engaging, I don't think. Yeah, it was on the agenda for for an oral briefing, okay. um, but we didn't get the papers on time previously, so they've okay. put it in now. But okay. we can request a, an oral briefing on that. I think that would be useful. I think that would be that would be very important. Like you know, just, you know there, there's love. This is this is. <clears throat> overarching plan, like so, uh, yeah. strategic of goals. I suppose one uh, just note there from is that some of the risks which have been identified which may impact the ability to deliver the plan, and it's quite risk, quite right the risks that put out. But I do believe that the, the COVID, COVID is probably one of the risks as well. You know, and you know if we can't, uh, well, hopefully we will get to grips with it this year, but there there will be a, a fallout from it, and you know, so I think that's. That should be one of the risks that the department should highlight as a as a possible um, inhibitor. And also, you know, like we're we're looking at sustainable and just picking out likes of sustainable farming and agri-food. What measures are supported will be there for the rural community and farmers? So I, I do think it's important that we do get that a proper proper consultation and discussion uh, briefing and discussion on it because it's, it's so overarching and so important. Okay, uh, thanks for that, John. Philip. Uh, written briefing then, so uh, on number 23 in your agenda, uh, update on um, Finn's Law to, uh, on the proposed public consultation. Uh, I want to refer um, members to the correspondence department of pages 512 to 513. That Finn is a former police dog that was stabbed while on duty in England in 2016. It was determined that the likelihood of successfully prosecuting Finn's attacker was, was undermined because of the Welfare of Animals Act 2006 in operation in England. It enabled individuals to justify inflicting unnecessary um, uh, suffering to an animal if they were acting in self-defence. As the dog's attacker claimed he was protecting himself during his arrest, prosecutors' only option to pursue charges for stabbing Finn under the Criminal Damages Act 1971. Legislation commonly referred to as Finn's Law was enacted in England and Wales in 2019 to close this loophole. Following a motion in the Assembly on this matter in February this year, the Minister signals intention to bring forward similar legislation to here. Um, since then, the Department has been developing a consultation document which will ask whether the public agrees that Finn's Law should be introduced here, giving increased protection to service animals, police and prison animals service animals as police and prison animals and where the public agrees with the level of penalties. Mr Pooch wrote to the Minister for Justice on the 24th of June this year, seeking her views on the introduction of Finn's Law. Minister Long stated that she is supportive of the principle of offering additional protection to service animals and the commission of their duties. It is intended that a public consultation will be issued in early 2021. 
uh, once the consultation documents are prepared, it will be forwarded to the committee for con comment prior to publication. Urgent funding laws here will, re will require primary legislation. Here, officials continue to explore legislative availability. Uh, members, have any particular comments in relation to this? Chair. Hi. <coughs> yes. To Hi. say, Chair, I look forward to seeing the consultation document early 21. Um, prior to publication, it's cruel to eat any animal, whether service dog or or whether it's just a pet is wrong and uh, does deserve prosecution. So, Chair, thank yep. you. Yep. Absolutely. Yep. 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 Um, item 24, written briefing, consultation response on the NA Animal Health and Welfare Strategic Framework. Uh, one of our members of correspondence to the Department of pages 515 to 549 and a copy of the Strategic Framework 550 to 598. One of the members of the Department has launched an eight-week consultation on the 6th of August uh, 2019 on proposals for um, a framework subgroup of the AHWSF uh, worked alongside officials in the development of the proposed framework. Similar strategic approaches are already in place in other jurisdictions. The proposed framework aims to provide an overarching and integrated approach to animal health and welfare programmes and activities here. It is intended to provide a mechanism for monitoring and reporting on performance using uh, the outcomes-based accountability model set out in the draft programme for government and the outcomes framework. It is proposed that the framework should have a 10-year lifespan and adopt the following five animal and wealth and welfare outcomes. Keep our animals healthy and treat them well. Have a, we have a competitive, innovative livestock industry that contributes to our economic prosperity. We protect the public health and our food from uh, animal-related disease. We take a sustainable approach to farming of animals that respects the environment. We have animal health and welfare safeguards that are widely recognised and trusted. Consultation exercise generated 36 responses from a range of uh, stakeholders, including farming representatives, bodies, industry, political parties, elected representatives, local government, animal charities, farms, and veterinary practices. Overall, the proposals were very favourably received, the scope of the framework being the issue of concern. A number of respondents suggested that the draft framework appeared to relate primarily to farmed animals and did not adequately address companion animals and animal welfare. It had, however, always been proposed that the scope should include farmed animals, companion <coughs> animals, animals used for sport, recreation or display w uh, wildlife uh, and aquaculture. Uh, nevertheless, um, the Department intends to amend the draft framework to clarify this focus is not predominantly on farmed animals and this is reflected in the draft response document. Some respondents also took issue with representation on the proposed oversight structure and the potential duplication with existing animal health and welfare groups and networks. It is recognised that there are already well-established technical working groups and bodies representing various interests. It is, however, considered that uh, establishing a specific representative body with overarching responsibility for overseeing the implementation of the framework is the most advantageous approach. The response paper does not, therefore, propose any substantive changes to this proposal, but clarifies that as part of the implementation process, it intended the Department uh, would engage existing bodies to consider indicators, data development and framework implementation to consider the new subgroups or networks are required. Uh, members, any questions or any comments to make in relation to that? Okay, are we happy enough to wait to consider the framework in, in detail prior to the launch? Okay. Uh, 25, um, written briefing, discussion document, environmental plans, principles and government, governance. 
Do you want to refer members to the correspondence in the Department at page 600 to 630? Advisement of the Minister has made some minor amendments to the discussion document on the plans, principles and government assemblies of the Environmental Bill prior to publication. Um, these amendments relate to the, the government's recent announcement that the Environment Bill will not receive royal assent until the new year. And as a result, the Office for Environmental Protection will not be fully operational until July 2021, at the earliest. The consequent need to consider interim arrangements and plans to develop a, um, a climate change bill for here. The Minister is satisfied that the scope of the consultation document is appropriate and a copy of the final draft uh, will be published shortly. Okay. Chair, just yes, uh, there's a line in the letter they've sent uh, and it says, with regard to the interim arrangements, the Minister has decided that uh, NIA should participate as far as is practically possible in common. Uh, and then, I, mean, I just think we could maybe write and ask for a wee bit more detail what that means, because it wasn't clear to me what it means. Yeah, should proceed as far as practical possible in the common. Yeah, good point. Okay, Barbara. Mm -hmm. Right. Okay. Uh, Correspondence. In number 26, pages 639 to 960, members content to action the correspondence outlined in the index at uh, page 632 to 638. Um, I to refer members to a number of items of correspondence that has been tabled. Members content to action the correspondence outlined in the index page. Okay. Item 27, the Forward Work Programme, um, pages 962 to 975. Sorry, Update on this now. On which one? I have just on the comment on the forward work program. Would Sorry. it be helpful? Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. That'd be helpful. Okay, so just to let you know, then the fourteenth of January we have the uh, Mark Allen's doing a paper on agricultural policy development. Officials are back to brief us on how EU exit has went, as we will then um, have ended the transition period. So we're going to get an update on what things are happening there. And again, we can bring in the priorities for 2021 there and ask for um, a briefing on that, including a written briefing, um, as we haven't received one for this meeting. Uh, we also have the revised TV strategy. Um, and as we've heard then going forward, we have possibly a climate change bill coming. We can look at the 30 year plan and looking to the week ahead after the 14th of January, we have Ming Bog. Um, and we also have then the common frameworks, which we had requested the department to give us information on um, more detail on those so we can decide what our priorities are. So that's just to give you an idea of what we can expect in the two weeks when we come back. <laughs> as well as, um, yeah, legislation as well. <laughs> Thank you, Barbara. That was very helpful. Um, so the forward pro work programme is for January to March, for January to 25th of March. Um, and there's still a number of uncertainties around various issues to be considered by the committee. The first meeting after the recess is the 14th of January. So are we okay for that? Uh, that um, agree that for the programme? Um, okay, item 28. Members of any other issues you want to raise? No? Okay, um, right. So the date and time of the next meeting is the... Um, the next committee meeting of Agriculture and Environment Rural Affairs is on Thursday the 14th of January 2021 at 10am in room 30 <coughs> Harlem Buildings. I hope you all have a very safe and quiet, peaceful Christmas and Happy New Year. See you all back here in this room. Thank you. Luck to you. Okay, folks, you're all right.